The following episode of the Movie Club podcast can and will contain spoilers. Please be aware of this before you listen. Thank you. Welcome to the Movie Club Podcast, an irregular podcast where we gather a group of uh, film fans and bloggers and uh, we get together and we talk about a bunch of movies and sort of analyze them and uh, just talk about whether or not we like them. This is episode number 21 and it's actually uh, a triple bill this time around. Uh, We've got Orson Welles' F for Fake. We're also going to be talking about Banksy's Exit Through the Gift Shop as well as Catfish. Um, so definitely a very strong collective theme this time around, I'd say. Um, so let's go around and introduce everybody, uh, starting with me. I am Sean from Film Junk. I'm Kurt from Row 3 and TwitchFilm.net. I am Jay from the TheDocumentaryBlog.com and the Film Junk Podcast. I'm uh, James from uh, the High and Low Brow Podcast at WhereTheLongTailEnds.com. And I'm Marina from Row3.com and QuietEarth.us. So, I guess, uh, for starting this one off, does anyone remember who suggested F for Fake? I kind of think it might have been Matt, but he's not here. Well, I'll, I'll drive that tanker, I guess. Um, yeah, I'll introduce it. It's, uh, I, actually, I have, I only saw it for the first time about a year ago, um, but it is sort of a famous in its own way, film. I think it was Orson Welles' very last film that he completed. He had lots of films that he didn't complete. and I think the last thing he did was the voice for Transformers the movie. <laughs> Fair <right>? enough. <laughs> as a director, um, not as a toy commercial. Um, but uh, uh, I, I think that uh, the movie sort of was hard to find for a long period of time, but in around somewhere in the mid like 2004 2005 it became widely available either through the criterion print or 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 in some other form and uh yeah when you go back and look at it uh now you really see it's kind of a pioneering editing film but the film itself is about the art world and a guy who uh makes fake paintings he doesn't copy other people's paintings he copies other people's styles and passes them off as originals and he has been selling these paintings all of his life uh and a guy writes a book at him and uh the guy who wrote the book actually ends up being the same guy who wrote the or didn't write the fake biography on howard hughes so you have a guy who paints fakes having a book written about him by another guy who makes fakes. And then, of course, Orson Welles is famous for The War of the Worlds, which is one of the great radio fake-outs of all time. And he's just blended a lot of different stories into sort of a tribute to fakery, and it's edited like a motherfucker, just to underscore that. Right. So I guess we can go around and give our each of our impressions of the movie. This is my first time seeing it. Although, you know, as you said, like it's it it is kind of it has a reputation. I had heard of it. 
Um, but uh, yeah, so I guess you know, I I actually wasn't crazy about this movie. Like, I definitely see uh, how it was groundbreaking and 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 that kind of thing. But I think also watching it now, it almost seems like I think it feels like it's more clever than it really is. And I don't know, maybe you guys can convince me otherwise. But like the first half hour of this movie, I honestly barely had an idea of what the heck was going on. And then when I started to get into it, I actually did really kind of get into the story of the the guy who who does the fake paintings and and you know, it does bring up some of the questions of well, you know, what's what's wrong with why is what he's doing valued less and like, you know, if he can kind of mimic the exact same you know, style as another painter who's famous and and whose paintings are worth millions. Why isn't his worth anything? And and that kind of stuff was kind of interesting. But it is very like just all over the place with the editing, and it, it does get a little bit confusing at times. And uh, I, I like the tone of it. It had this kind of playful tone with Orson Welles narrating a lot of it, and I liked kind of the magic sort of uh, theme or metaphor he used at the beginning and the end. Um, but yeah, I, overall, it was uh, kind of a head scratcher for me. What do you say, Kurt? Um, well, I'll confess that uh, leading up to this podcast, I watched the movie five times. So it's pretty safe to say that that <laughs> wow. I'm a fan of this movie. Um, I just find this thing endlessly mesmerizing. I get um, so, as I said before, I saw it for the first time only a year ago. Uh, but now that I've got a now that I've got a copy of it and I can watch it at home and it plays really well on the small screen, um, but yeah, I, I I just watch it over and over again. I love the rhythm of the movie and I love that um, uh, Wells sort of he handholds you without condescending to you. You feel like you're at a dinner table and and you are many times over this movie, <laughs> like you're at a dinner table with him and you're just getting these absolutely awesome anecdotes, but then. When you pull back a little bit, you realize this thing is just crazily structured. Uh, I mean, the amount of work that must have went into this. And he sits, like, it, it constantly reminds you that it's edited because he's sitting in an, in the editing room with one of those really old, like, upright movieolas. And I don't know if this movie was edited on a movieola. It might have been. I mean, the, some of the footage is pretty raw. <laughs> uh, but anyway, I, I just... I love film editing, and this movie is like uh, the, one of the ultimate tributes to film editing. All right, Jay. Um, I had seen it previously, and I rewatched it for the the movie club podcast, <laughs> which we are doing, which right we're now. currently doing. <laughs> we're recording it, um, yes. and I, I agree with Kurt. I think that this movie is is awesome, and and it's. I can see how maybe it's confusing on a first watch, but I think it's pretty. I, I think it's pretty. Um, it, once you get past all of this sort of backtracking and and playfulness of Wells saying, you know, oh, here are these details, but before we get into that, I should backtrack and we should do this, and then once we're done that, we'll jump ahead to this. And I mean, he he. I think he's pretty clear in um, how playful he's being in the structure. And it doesn't it it like you said it it doesn't um, spoon feed you, but it's not um, totally un unfollowable. <laughs> it's it's like he's clearly telling you when they're they're taking these tangents, 
but even still you have to keep up with them taking these tangents like it's it's very structured um chaos i guess and and they're informing you as you go that this is going to get chaotic and you know now we're here and but before we go there we're going to go here and i think if you just stay focused on the main track everything that's happening around it um doesn't really matter it's all just kind of uh playful dialogue and and winks to the camera and and whatnot i think the story itself is is pretty straightforward and easy to follow it's just presented in a very flamboyant style um and it's fun i mean it's got magic in it that's true it does Um, have magic (laughs) it's got some great uh imagery in it and some great stories and and just the way he he speaks throughout the film is is uh it, it, I think it's a. I, I agree. It's a mesmerizing experience. All right, James. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I, I enjoyed this one a lot. Um, I'm glad to hear um, other people saying that the editing was, you know, what struck them as is really, um, you know, interesting about the film because uh, I um, that was what I took away from it was just how frenetic and and strangely it was edited it was almost edited in a way it it reminded me of those kind of real like operatic um like those epic kung fu movies that um you know they that just that sort of slam bang editing that they have in those and uh it 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 definitely added to the film and uh wells you know proves himself to be a a master of the form again uh only this time you know, just this this film through its editing and the way it's presented just constantly causes you to question the validity of um, you know authenticity in, in art, how important authenticity is, and and uh, I I think it it went to a lot of very interesting places and was well done. Marina, I'm kind of with you on this one, Sean. I I really liked it, but I had some issues with the first half hour. I scratched my head and I thought for sure that maybe I'd like fallen asleep and kind of missed something. And then it kind of picked up. But the first 20 minutes or so, I was just so confused. Like, what's going on? Who are these people? (laughs) Yeah. It was just all over the place for me. But once the story sort of picked up and things started getting interesting, you know, you're talking to Elmir and then you've got Clifford Irving involved and things just get weirder and weirder. It, it gets really, really interesting, and I really wish the movie had been longer and that we'd had a chance to explore these characters a little bit further. Because as it sounds, it sort of feels like a stream of consciousness. Like, you sort of have this idea, and you're going along and sharing this idea, and you're like, oh, wait, I forgot to tell you this part. So let's tell you this part. So I could see the editing, and yeah, it's really interesting, and I appreciate that. And, you know, for me, it's not really the reason for me to watch the film, but it is really entertaining once you get past... You know, once you go sort of go in and sort of experience, I guess I think my problem was I was expecting like a documentary and that's not really what I got. And it took me a few minutes to sort of get myself into the mindset to watch this. Then once I was there, I really enjoyed it. So I think on a second viewing, it might be like even more enjoyable. I would love to watch the extras on this disc. Um, I really liked it. I thought it was great. Yeah. Well, speaking of the extras on the disc, if you want to see how you can compare how Wells handles 
the story um, versus um, a, a, your your typical made for television documentary filmmaker just have a look at the uh, bonus documentary that is included on the second disc and you'll see <laughs> you know what happens to this story when it's in the hands of someone who decides to approach it with that frenetic style and someone who just decides to throw some talking heads in there with stock footage and shots of paintings. But the extra on the disc, it's not directed by Francois Reichardt or whatever the guy's name is that sort of, it's not his use of the footage, is it? It's the the documentary on the disc is from 1997, I think. Okay, so it's recent. And, but it uses footage from F for Fake um, that they claim is from a BBC archive. So I don't know if it's if the footage that is an F for Fake was actually shot by that filmmaker or if they were using stock footage on top of the footage that was shot for F for Fake. Because the fascinating thing about all three of these films, and we'll get into the other two later, but all three of them started out with the filmmakers making one film and that film coming to a halt or changing direction radically and becoming something totally different. I mean, in hindsight, I don't think we saw that going in. We were more looking at the fake real documentaries, but here are three filmmakers. Like I get the sense that Wells, Marina, you say it's frenetic and, and you, you wish you wanted more. And, and I just don't think there was any more to give. I think that this French filmmaker who's the art collector in or art former art dealer in the movie that started making this documentary on Ibiza uh, or in Ibiza on uh, Elmir and uh, and Clifford is sort of Irving is in there in the background I, I don't think he finished this I think he just gave whatever footage he had to Wells and Wells rolled it up with a bunch of other footage that he had and turned a movie out of a bunch of different parts because the girl watching thing is actually like a short film by Oya Kodar, like a, like a, almost like a feminist film of, uh, but he slips it in there and then the magic and then the, there's stuff with uh, the guy from Manchurian candidate. Like there's this one magic trick. I've, they don't even, I think it's from one of his failed film projects. So he's injected that in there and one of my favorite things about what he does in, in F for Fake is he makes Elmir and Clifford have conversations with each other that it's obviously edited different interviews. And, and he, he amplifies the ticking clock to emphasize like them hiding something. I, I mean, it is the I mean, the F for Fake is almost not about the guy who are doing hoaxes or anything. It's completely about how I can make things happen by just razor sharp editing and putting a voiceover to patch it all up and making it go fast enough that it feels like it, it is like, I mean, the magician stuff is totally warranted. It feels like Wells is doing a shaking his right hand all over the place while he's doing things with his left hand. Cause when you watch this movie four or five times in a week, um, <laughs> you realize that there are elements every time like someone says the word fake or the word hoax or whatever, uh, Oya pops her head in. <laughs> like she's like right in front of the restaurant. She drives by. She, I, I mean, even there's even a, a scene when Elmir is talking about his time in America and you see this woman walking by and it's just some woman walking by, but it echoes the, the, the girl watching stuff later. There's, I don't know how long they spent putting this together but it really does feel like a lot of these 
almost found footage in its own way uh, is has been poured over in intricate detail to make things like like a piece of music like it, it goes up and it goes down and it calls back on itself but it doesn't do it in a way that a movie normally does it is going so fast and it's breezing by so fast that it's it's just not a movie you see everything the first time like any con man movie you don't really see the whole point of a con man movie is to watch one movie the first time and a totally different movie the second time and this one operates on four or five levels of that and I see where you're coming from but I think that might be one of the reasons why I really enjoyed it but it's not something that I'm going to be revisiting all the time because I was more interested in hearing more about the, the, the people I wanted to hear more about Elmir. I wanted to know more about Clifford Irving. I wanted documentaries on those people. And that's not really what he's giving us to begin with. But that's, when I was watching it, that's what I wanted. And so, I mean, yeah, I enjoyed the film. And, you know, he gave me a bunch of really cool stuff that I really enjoyed watching. And I love the way that he's built it. And I like this idea of making a film about fake stuff. Because, I mean, that's all... I shouldn't say that. I, I, we'll take that back. But, I mean, I, I like the idea of a movie about fakery, like you say. But I just... It's not really what I wanted to see at the end of it. Like, I enjoyed it, but I wanted more. And what I wanted more of is not something that he was even offering up to begin with. Has anyone watched um, the Lassie Hellstrom movie, The Hoax? Which is... Yep. Uh, I I couldn't get it in time to watch it for this show. I, I just, it would it's very good. is it an interesting side feature because it is a the whole movie is on Clifford Irving, Clifford Irving. right? It's is that the good. Richard Gear? You know, it's what's his name? Um, Richard Gear hasn't really done anything good in a number of years, and he was actually very good in that film. And it's it's an interesting story to begin with, and he's built a fairly interesting little movie too. But yeah, I guess it's like a nice addition to this and I think maybe watching this I kind of thought ooh Clifford Irving maybe I'm going to get more of the real Clifford Irving and it didn't just didn't materialize but that's not really what he's getting at anyways right it's just these are the characters that he's built into this movie about fakery in general so it just wasn't what I was expecting really but I still really enjoyed it I think like that's one of the things that confused me a little bit too is it's like he's introducing these characters and and as you're starting you sort of start starting to figure out okay who is this guy what's the story behind him but because it's not you know a, a standard documentary you don't really get you know the setup all the information you need and then when the cutting and stuff starts happening and you're trying to figure out well does this does this even matter like you know he he's more concerned with playing around with the editing and sort of proving he's more concerned with showing you his point than actually explaining his point, if that makes any sense. So like, it's, it's, I guess it's like the medium is the message kind of thing. You know what I'm saying? Like, and, and that's cool. But then when there is interesting stuff in there, it's frustrating because you're like trying to extract things from it. And that's not really the point. That's not what he wants to show you. Um, but well, I, I think the closest and most obvious comparison you can make this in terms of this film to, to modern documentary filmmaking, aside from the two that we're going to be talking about, is Dear Zachary. And yeah. that movie uses the same sort of pop. Um, it's like they're both kind of pop art films. Um, the editing itself is is a. Uh, you know, an important piece of both projects. And you could say, I think a lot of people that had the same, that had complaints about Dear Zachary are coming from the same perspective in that, you know, it's like, okay, you've got this great crime story 
with this huge emotional uh, twist. But I'm it's being presented to me as a um, you know this sort of like soundbite remix sort of uh, fashion that it's distracting and it's it's not allowing me to get into the story and it's like well you know that that's what is interesting about it i mean yes you could i mean i saw the 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 dear zachary story retold on an episode of 2020 or whatever it was and it was not the same story i mean it it was it just felt like every other murder mystery um that you'd see on any ma- news magazine show um so so losing i think some of that spark and some of that um identity that dear zachary has um really affected the story in my opinion and i think that this movie is designed similarly and and it's it works on a more visceral level and i think the the way the the film is delivered works perfectly with the story um i think you're constantly questioning things and i mean the the very beginning of the movie orson wells tells you you know i promise you that what you're going to see is 100 percent true for the next hour and then as soon as he says that you get a shot of the word fake coming down like scrolling down it's like okay what does that mean does that mean that he's lying that's fake that i mean it's it's playful in that way and i think that while there probably there is an interesting story there that could be handled by a a great filmmaker in a very traditional manner, I'd be worried that um, you know it might lose some of its charm if it's just taken to uh, uh, talking heads. Well, like the extra, like not the extra on the I didn't actually finish watching it, um, and it's not horrible, but it's like I don't know some of the thrill of the way it was presented in F for Fake is a little more interesting, in my opinion. And keep in mind that F for Fake was being filmed right in the middle of all of this. So right in the middle of the reaction to... Uh, I, I mean, when Irving shows Elmir a, a newspaper article from the London Times, it's like that weekend's London Times. So, I mean, the, 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 the reaction to his book, Fake... Um, is still immediate. And then uh, Clifford's subsequent run-through with the Howard Hughes thing is all going on at the same, like, you know, within this same year. And so this guy, this French guy, was making this, what I assume to be conventional documentary. And they got at some footage, but, you know, it went off the rails probably with Irving going to jail. And, I mean, Elmir committed suicide the next year. Um and and so they just never had a i don't think they had a traditional doc like you need a certain level of narrative <laughs> so but that can always be provided by this expert and that expert sure you you could this, talking head it to you know, death widow and that widow and 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 in some ways effort fake plays well as a talking heads documentary it's just that the heads look like they're talking to people that they're not talking to and orson wells comes in to to patch things up but i mean he doesn't patch things up like a normal hack voice over does he he starts reading kipling in the middle and that's a wonderful piece of verse that he reads and i mean it's actually um in the banksy film you 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 see um you know i I don't know if it says is it is it pretty 
but you do see a huge caption. Is it art? I mean, all oh, I mean, you see him watching the those two films back to back. I'm like, whoa! Like that's you know, and that's always the fundamental thing with with art is uh, um, you know where does art get its significance? It gets significance from what's attributed to it, and how does it get significance attributed to it? Well, people have to talk about it, or people have to be taken in by it, and 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 that has to stay around for a while. And 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 in a way, um, I think. You know, Wells is not looking to make a film. I mean, it, it is now, I think, considered a high piece of art documentary filmmaking. But at the time, it, it felt more like he was making a uh, like a prank film, like a film that um, uh, was when it was in itself a hoax, like and, and just trying to be playing with the idea of, well, how do you make a film that would fool people? I mean, there have been a lot of them. I mean, there's been. Well, uh, what's so, the Forgotten Silver yeah, is another one. I was going to say, like, to me, like, I was kind of expecting more something like that, more like Forgotten Silver. And, I mean, I don't know if when this movie first came out, if people would have watched it and taken it more at face value. And that, maybe that's part of the problem is that, like, nowadays, anybody watches just a standard documentary and they're, like, looking at it going, that's fake, that didn't happen. They're trying to tear it apart. And, like, obviously, we're watching this movie under a certain theme and I'm already thinking, okay, this movie's going to play around with stuff. And like, it almost feels like the movie would work better if you had actually taken, you know, the first hour at face value. And then he's got kind of the last story that's not true. And there's kind of that twist. And, and like, to me, that wasn't a big surprise. Like, Oh, okay. That wasn't true. Like, was anything true? Like I was not even, that was part of the problem is like some of those stories in there are, are, are real. And the whole time I'm thinking, like, is any of this real? Like, I didn't know. But the big, the big thing is, and, and I think this is with documentaries in general, is to me it really doesn't matter. I, I'm not looking for movies to tell the truth. But if they get at some fundamental truth, even if they lie their head off, like, um, you know, which I think all of these movies do to a degree, you know. But bottom line is if they tell me something interesting, if they show me something interesting – I could care less whether they're true or not. I mean, like that, I, I was saying before we started recording, that James Frey novel with Oprah and people threw a huge fit about, you know, when it came out that he he wasn't a recovering addict, he just made the book up. I mean, it's still a good read. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I just don't understand what people want. Like, how does it being true give resonance? I know a lot of films put you know, based on a true story or whatever. I mean, even some filmmakers like the Coen brothers put it on films that are not <laughs> to give it a level of well, authenticity. Return like of the Fargo. Living Dead was based on a true story. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but, um, you know, these things, it doesn't matter whether it's true or not. If it, it, it ultimately is what the movie is saying. And I think Wells in this movie starts to get at that with the church. I, I love the scene where he shows that huge, church in france and it's photographed from all these different angles and he's saying you know like there's no one's name associated with this it's just a bunch of anonymous craft people that were probably bullied by the church into building it you know to a degree i mean um and yet here is this thing and it it's as beautiful and awe-inspiring as looking at a picasso or um you know one of any of number of the the paintings that are real or fake in this and you're not worried about whose name on it whereas with the the dollars in f for fake you're everyone is concerned about whose name is on it and even the whether or not they can arrest 
Elmir and send him to jail is based on whether or not someone witnessed him signing it. It's totally fine for him to paint things in other people's style. There's nothing wrong with that. But as soon as you, it's the signature that is the, the, the big thing in question. And then there's all these side plots in the movie about forged passports and, and the forged Howard Hughes handwriting. And, and you know, it's just wonderful that you look at these things and say, you know, none of this really matters. If, if you look at that painting and it's, and it's excellent and it brings you some level, level of joy or fulfillment or, or, or makes you think about something like that's what art does, then who cares? And I think by presenting F for fake a bit like a farce, I mean, it's, it's narrated like a farce. It's narrated like a, like a, like a magic show. Uh, not that a magic show is a farce, but I mean, there's just sort of that, stage showmanship which you don't consider with high art you think high art is dignified and it hangs well lit in a gallery whereas this is full carnival like the way this movie is made and you know ultimately uh it doesn't matter as long as people take value out of it it's it's presented like a an anecdote that like i don't think it's any um accident that a lot of we see a lot of footage of Orson Welles sitting at a, a table with people ordering food and telling the people what's happening and then having him in his narration, like I said before, saying, oh, wait, let me backtrack to this and that. Like The way that the narrative is, is laid out is very um, conversational in that it goes into places, it has tangents and it has... Uh, moments where he loses, almost loses his train of thought or something and has to retrace his steps. And I mean, when you're dealing with the structure of a film, like obviously you can, you can work around that. It's not like, you know, he wrote the narration and was like, Oh, I, I went too far, but I got to stick with it. So I'm going to, I just got to backtrack. Like it's obviously designed to feel like someone telling a story at a dinner table. And that's how stories are told at dinner tables. It's like, oh, I forgot this one detail. L- let me backtrack. It's like, this guy did this in the... And I think that's the the fun of it. Like, it, it works in that way that it, that you've got, like, this master storyteller, uh, you know, with you wrapped around his finger and telling the story how he wants to tell it. And it just so happens that the story kind of... Uh, works thematically with that presentation. I think it's a very interesting way to tell a real story. And it's an, an inter- interesting take on documentary filmmaking. Like, a, you know, what whatever you would want to call this film, I guess it's like a visual essay or something. But um, it, is a, it is a documentary. I mean, I, I think it, I, I would feel comfortable calling it a, a documentary and I would feel comfortable saying it's a very unusual one that really plays with the form um years before it was popular to play with the form well he makes that joke somewhere i think it's quite early on in the film is that a magician is an actor playing the part of the magician and people often say that well i've heard it i don't know who said it first but it it comes up anytime someone debates the truth in documentary is that you know a film itself is a documentary Mm-hmm. of the filmmakers making the film even yeah. though it's completely artificial so you know really the the line is as i don't know when or who got the stupid idea that that documentaries have this 
air of truth. And I find it really refreshing. Now, obviously, Wells was way ahead of the curve on this, but I find it refreshing that, you know, 20 something years later, I mean, the whole documentary, documentary, you know, sort of separated documentary industry has come to embrace the fact that um, let's let it all hang out there. Like documentaries don't have to be aiming for this authoritative, truthful voice. They can embrace, you know, truthiness and just graft on whatever they want and, and, and do whatever they want in the spirit of telling their story if they have to have an actor stage a little bit or or do a little bit if it's in service of telling the overall story that's i mean that happens it happened it's happened since the first documentary as long as they're sincere about what they're doing correct well i see it but that's that's part of the problem is like how do you know if they're sincere right and i mean we'll probably get into this a little bit with catfish but i think like it is an interesting question like should I mean, that's probably really what we're talking about with all of these movies. Like, does it matter if they're true or not? And I mean, I think F for Fake is a little different than the other two because you're right. It it it's very playful the whole time. And like I said, I don't I don't think I ever for once thought any of it was true. And maybe that was part of a problem for me because I kind of just thought it was all kind of hoaxy, made up stuff. And the the twist at the end when he kind of you know reveals that you know, the last story was completely made up and it kind of feels like that's supposed to be some big reveal when to me it really wasn't. But at the same time, like, you know, I, I agree. I don't, I don't necessarily think uh, a documentary has to be true in order to be significant or effective in any way. Um, and I guess, yeah, it's like, why, I don't know. Why is that? Why do people care? I guess because they, they feel swindled themselves like they feel like stupid because they got tricked if they find out after the fact that something wasn't real or, or something like that well in fiction film it's all about suspension of disbelief once a film has lost me i find like i'm talking like a totally made up film science fiction a fantasy anything if a film's lost me it doesn't have anything to do with the actual truth it has to do with the universe that is built and whether or not i found the filmmaker could contain everything he stuffed into the sort of rules, expectations, and overall vibe of the universe that he built. And some filmmakers can do that and still break the rules and feel like they're being honest. And then some filmmakers set up a bunch of rules and then ignore them all. And you go, well, why did you set them up in the first place? But these sorts of things are clearly, yeah, clearly. You mean, you mean the uh, the veracity of of the universe? I mean... That the that the narrative takes place in that it sort of it has to obey its own physics. I think so. I think it's fair that if I'm watching a fantasy film and they say you have to you you know you have to get this to use these things, or you can only go invisible when the moon is full, and then you see the character going invisible later on in some nonsensical context you go like what what the hell it just it, it shakes you out of the film and now there's some filmmakers that can shake you out of the film and still keep you with you know wrapped around your finger uh but then there's other times when i feel like it's laziness and uh um well yeah i mean i think the documentary <clears throat> truth thing is just dependent of, i i don't think it's um a blanket statement i think it does kind of depend on the film but i think it the idea of you know rules in a universe apply to to documentary filmmaking like if you get a film that's um like a michael moore sort of film or an issue film or something or something that's supposed to be an authoritative look at a you know uh, the the 
crisis in Haiti. And then somewhere they slip in that it was, uh, it was, you know, all because of, uh, uh, underground society that has a monster that got angry or something. Like you have to keep your, your reality in check, uh, in terms of like how you present your information, I think. But when you get into films that are kind of character studies and like the point of the film is maybe to just offer a different perspective on life or, or, who we are or whatever. I, I think it's okay to, um, you know, get creative in how you present that or, um, you know, like I, I guess one movie that recently came out that I haven't seen yet, but I want to see that really plays with the idea of the, the documentary is the Arbor. Have you guys heard of this movie? I've heard of it. It's a, a documentary. If you, if you can call it that where it's all, all of the the dialogue in the film is pulled from interviews, but they hired actors to come in to sets that they built and and everything, and the the actors actually lip sync to all of the dialogue. So what you're seeing is completely fake and staged and and structured and but what you're hearing is actually it's like that creature comforts animated thing where they right. have real interviews. Done not with cows, claymation. Like, yeah. Claymation. Well, didn't they? What was that gay? Um, the where they hung the gay guy up on the fence. It's like the some the Laramie Project. I think was done that way. It was all. It, it was it was a Talking Head documentary with celebrities, but yes. it was all the recorded interviews that they had done, and it totally worked. Mm -hmm. I mean, it, it's it it really really does work because you want the visual information to augment you know, what the movie is saying and whether that is captured verite or whether it's staged. I mean, it can work and fail in both. Con it's just a w one way of doing it. You can get real footage and it can be terrible and you can get f staged footage and not necessarily work. But obviously people that know what they're doing and clearly have it in mind, what they want to do are more likely to succeed, whether it's actual footage or highly staged footage. Yeah, I mean, it depends on the person you're talking to. I think, you know, documentary purists can get pretty um, picky about what they consider to be true documentary filmmaking. Like, you throw in some lights and suddenly it's not true. And, you know, right. you ask someone to sit near a window so that, that you can get better lighting on their face and suddenly you're manipulating reality. And that stuff is just, I think, is a waste of time. But, I mean... Good lighting's a waste of time. No, the the <laughs> analyzing that stuff and you know making accusations that that's somehow you know uh, tainting. The well, as film, soon as you I put mean, a camera in there, exactly. that's like it, it's the whole uh, what is it the the um, Einstein uh, cat in the box e, e equals MC no, squared. No, 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 no. The cat. <laughs> I'm not going to let you do what you did to Jerry to me when he brought up Einstein. But no, like you, you, you affect the experiment by looking at it. As soon as you look at something, right, it yeah. ceases to be what it was when you weren't looking at it. I, I don't I think, think that's the camera Einstein. is exactly. It's, uh, you're right. It's Schrodinger. Schrodinger. Thank you. Um, <laughs> but uh, but yeah, that that that's absolutely true with a camera and even. Like the the fake docs have a great understanding of that. I mean, even like the BB, BBC version of The Office, um, the way some of the characters like it's really interesting acting in BBC's Office because the characters are 
in a fictional show pretending to be real people pre- pretending to be affected because there's a camera there. I always found that sort of thing very interesting. And so, I mean, the fact is is that people have cameras pointed at them all the time. So I think that the, the, the actors in particular have no trouble doing that triple layer it's it's almost natural at this point that everyone ha- is filmed at some time and and whatever and obviously actors and that are, are even more but um it is fascinating now that we have many many i guess christopher guest started it or even peter watkins but peter watkins subjects in all those you know films that he made they're not playing up to the camera the way in the christopher guest films the way the the characters play up to the camera like it's like mm-hmm. it's there. But either way, I mean, that's, I guess we've tangented it off. But as soon as you point a camera at someone, it's no longer documentary. So therefore, <laughs> documentaries cannot exist. I mean, it, it just comes down to the fact that I think documentary filmmakers should be allowed to use the same tools that uh, fiction filmmakers can use. They should be able to use um, visual metaphors and, you know, just ways to get the point across. Like if, if you're... I mean, the the laziest example is that, you know, if someone, something tragic happened to someone and you bring them to the the place where it happened and that's a way of getting them to talk about it and then they'll get have an emotional response. Whereas if you just interviewed them in a, you know, a shopping mall <laughs> as they're shopping, their mind is elsewhere. And it's like you're affecting their, their, uh, what they're going to say and, and by purposely taking them to this place that they otherwise probably wouldn't be walking around and getting them to respond to it and you know that's kind of the dateline nbc way of doing things but i think it's a that's the idea is that you know whatever you have to do to maybe have a a summarize an emotion or or some sort of exposition in in terms of the story to make it a little more interesting for the viewer you know like get a point across that's more visually like the the example that always comes up is in uh gates of heaven in errol morris's film where the one son who's got this sort of attitude that he's you know he's this perfectionist and he's this motivational speaker guy but he's actually under the younger brother who's higher in the chain at the actual the cemetery where they the family run cemetery Errol Morris has him in this office that's just full of trophies everywhere. And it's his trophy room when in reality, those trophies were all in the attic and Errol Morris asked him to bring them down and they basically set decorated. And it's like a lot of people would be put off by that. Like, you know, that that's not real. He didn't have all those trophies out, but fine, it's not real, but they are his trophies. And it is a, a hell of a visual to summarize this guy's true, you know, attitude within the in, frame in one shot. And yeah. that, you know, that's a, a piece of filmmaking. It, it's a tool, a filmmaking tool that I think documentary filmmakers should be allowed to use. I mean, <laughs> it's funny you mentioned that film though, cause that film is constantly compared to, I don't know if it predates Spinal Tap or if it postdates Spinal Tap, but it's constantly compared to Spinal Tap because these characters behave like that, Legitimately, <laughs> they're yeah. not actors faking like they have cameras on, so they're puffing themselves up. These these are people <laughs> puffing themselves up because they're being filmed. And and I don't know. I mean, I find Spinal Tap works and Gates of Heaven work. So yeah. Well, and I maybe this is going to derail the conversation even more. But like you know, you're talking about 
documentary filmmakers should be able to use all the tools that fictional filmmakers can use. Speed ramping, bullet time. (laughs) (laughs) Sure. But I think, you know, then the issue becomes, well, can documentary films then be judged basically on the same merits that a fictional film can be judged, which, you know, meaning like, you know, if I didn't like a particular character or if I didn't like a particular scene in a documentary, can I then say, I didn't like that documentary because I didn't like that scene or I didn't like those characters? No. But then the argument is always, but that's real. That's what happened. So, you know, yes, you should be able to do that. That's the problem. The problem is that people watch the movie about the guy who's slowly dying of AIDS and it's shot like a piece of shit and it doesn't do any justice to this guy's story at all. And the filmmaker has no fucking clue what they're doing. And the film comes out and it gets 98% on Rotten Tomatoes because people don't have the balls to say the movie about the real man dying of AIDS sucked ass. I mean, yes, you should be able to to review a documentary film in that that fashion i think but i mean you should also keep in mind like i when we talked about restrepo i wasn't blown away by restrepo and i completely realized that the filmmakers were in danger when they were filming it the people in the film are putting themselves in these situations they're they're defending their country and it's very you know honorable and and it's you know something i'm not doing but i don't think that means i can't say like i didn't find the film as good as everyone else did or or you know i wish that you know the the scene where they were getting shot at i wish i could have seen a little better (laughs) i wish that they would have stopped hiding um but i mean yeah it's a it's a tough thing but that's the problem like documentaries are just given passes because it they deal with real subjects and and people automatically it's almost like it has to look like shit or else it's not real you know (laughs) yeah well, I guess, like, just to get to back to F for Fake a little bit, like, we were already talking about how, like, you know, a lot of people aren't even calling it a documentary. People are calling it a quote-unquote film essay. But to me, it's like, well, what's the difference? Like, isn't a documentary a film essay for the most part? Like, I mean, I guess it depends. Like, you know, maybe story-based documentaries aren't as much. But, you know, certainly a Michael Moore movie is a film essay, I would say. So... I don't know. It's just kind of weird that there's this distinction that people are drawing there. I think it's, yeah, I mean, it's just, uh, I would be comfortable calling it a documentary. I mean, it's like the thriller versus uh, horror. (laughs) Certainly as much as Exit Through the Gift Shop, which is nominated for Best Documentary at the Oscars. Well, I I think that, yeah, if people want a documentary to um, be just the facts, ma'am, and the Michael Moore and F for Fake come across as more of an editorial, so people parse them that way. I don't believe it's valid, but I, I do believe that you look at the op-ed page in the newspaper different from the front page or or the, the, the world news section. You, you, you treat it... Uh, I guess the, 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 the chief fallacy of people watching... Docu- of many people watching documentaries or people critiquing documentaries is that they um, they spend a lot of time... Um, critiquing the intentions or the um, the agenda, uh, the the agenda. Uh, when every film has an agenda of of sorts, uh, and I mean, like I, I I guess what Jay is saying. I mean, critique 
what, how the film is made and does it do justice to the subject, just like you would a fictional film, rather than trying to parse, you know, whether or not this person has a slant or, 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 or this or that. I mean, I really like Michael Moore's films. I, I, I don't... Uh, okay, I understand why he gets the criticism that he gets, but uh, I find the one thing about Michael Moore's films is that they have a real finger on the pulse of a certain outlook of a certain subset of America. Like when you have people going to parades with the, the little, you know, guys in Shriner cars or, or goofy beach boys songs or, or whatever he has a way of, I mean, you can argue whether, whether or not it's real, but who cares whether it's real? The, the, the point being is he's found a way to tell the story of some cultural niche within America. And I, I, I like that. There's not a lot of other people doing it, and he does it very, very well. I mean, there's obviously a number of imitators, uh, the, the chief among them being uh, Morgan Spurlock, who's terrible at it. Um, Although I am curious about his new movie. I read some stuff about it, and it sounds, I don't know, it could be complete crap, but it, it sounds... Something like the greatest The greatest movie ever, ever sold. Yeah, but I, I mean, bottom line is, uh, you know, I, I just look at, Everything. I, sadly, I, I get criticized for it myself of looking at everything through like sort of an auteur sort of lens. And, you know, Michael Moore is an auteur filmmaker. You can tell right away, besides his presence being in it, that that you're watching a, a Michael Moore film. And uh, I mean, I, I wouldn't say F for Fake feels like every other Orson Welles film, uh, but Orson Welles was one of those filmmakers that shifted genre and style quite effort like like a kurosawa or a kubrick i mean they he he whatever he did he did very very well and he would he always wanted to do different things and for this movie being his swan song um you know obviously barring transformers the movie <laughs> that um, was definitely a swan song <laughs> this movie uh feels like the culmination of his career all of the the um uh Stuff that he does, uh, you know, on the radio and, and Touch of Evil and um, Citizen Kane. And, and he, he injects himself right into the movie. So in a way, it, it is his story. This is my career. This is what I did all in my career. And I find this shit interesting. And, and he's like, and I'm willing to share this with you. I'm willing to hold your hand and, and take, you, take you with me. And uh, yeah, even if he's nudging in you in the ribs a few times, it's like... It's no fun unless you're being nudged in the ribs a few times. I I, I don't go to a, a a magician show to have to figure out how the magician did it. I'm I'm amazed by the the showmanship is the reason for watching magic. <laughs> and Jay's nodding his head. Okay, I'm getting a lot of head nods over there. But um, but you know, I any any magician that I that I watch, I just love to watch what they do. And and yeah, okay, you do play the game of how did he do it? And for fake, I think you can you can start to understand the craft of, of how it was done. But when I rewatch it again and again, it's not so that I learn more of how he made it. It's, I just like being swept up in that energy of just pure filmmaking. Like, I mean, the, he's made a fake film and a fake film where he's telling you he's making a fake film in a roundabout way. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. Like, I can certainly see this as being like a movie that you'd show to, you know, film school students and be like, you know what, you know, like you're in first year film and it's like you want to see how editing can manipulate stuff and like the power of cinema or whatever. Like this movie clearly 
demonstrates Do you that. want to know where Tony Scott and Michael Bay came from? <laughs> they probably watched this movie a lot. <laughs> yeah. But, I mean, maybe that's that's the other thing, too, is that some of this stuff, some of the, the editing and, and just the idea that you can manipulate stuff is, like, it feels so much more commonplace now mm. that I think this would have been... You know, I hate always saying that, but like it probably would have been a lot more mind blowing when it first came out. Um, still very cool now, but you know. So, any other thoughts on F for Fake before we uh, move on here? No, uh, I just thought another terrific thing about the film was the presence of Wells had, and he he's so self conscious as both the director and the narrator in this one. That um, I thought it was really terrific to see him kind of aware of this kind of bizarre, larger-than-life presence he had in this film. I mean, some of the ridiculous things he was doing, like the bit where he rubbed red wine behind his ears and things like that, I think he was, like, well aware that he just... He's kind of a bit ridiculous, and and he has a lot of fun at his own expense. He's rocking a cape for most of the movie, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> which I can't believe was cool in 1975 either. <laughs> he made it cool. He did. He did. Well, okay, here's here's a quick poll. Uh, who has, like, I think Wells in this movie has the sexiest voice ever. Um, yeah. I, I, he, like, the... He he doesn't narrate the entire film, but he narrates a huge chunk of it. And you know, you look at all of his films he, that he's a character in, and all the films he's acting, in, and yes, even Transformers the movie. Why do he's you got think got they a chose deep, him for deep, Unicron? Deep Come on, voice. Now. and um, <laughs> and I don't know is is he the sexiest movie voice? I, I mean, I, the only other big, deep, sexy movie voice I can think of is Keith David. Um, I mean, who's the sexiest movie voice out there ever? I like that. Um in the film version of A Brief History of Time that Stephen Hawking kind of mechanical voice <laughs> that is pretty sexy yeah <laughs> it gets uh, you hard does it <laughs> <laughs> yeah I mean that's a good point his, his voice is pretty commanding and awesome but it's strange that usually the deep commanding voice is sort of an authoritative voice whereas in this it's a like a dinner companion voice. And, uh, um, I mean, deep down, I think he is using the authoritativeness to do something, but it, it, it doesn't feel, you know, like, uh, like usually a a deep voice would be used in, in a movie. Like usually a deep voice movie just tells you facts, endless facts. Whereas this one's not quite the same, but nonetheless, I, I, I think the, if you had a different person, like without Wells as the on camera, like if Wells directed it and had another actor in there, I don't know if this, I mean, you can never know, but I think that his presence, I think you're right, James, his presence is so fundamental to the, to the on screen nature of the movie. And he does disappear for long periods of time, like as a, but every now and again, he, he'll pop back in at his movieola or, or in that hall of mirrors. Like, there's some wonderful visual... Like, they're, they're almost non-sequitur visual shots. Like, there's just one of him walking down the street, and you get all the reflections and all the panes of glass of him as he's talking. And, and then, I don't know, there's five or six shots where they just go out of their way to 
do something interesting visually where, whereas you know a huge chunk of this movie looks like ass too <laughs> like it's really grainy 16 like it's multi-film stock uh kind of thing it's the nature of the beast because they have they're pulling from all sorts of different movies but i think it was pretty ballsy to do all those freeze frames on 16 millimeter i, I don't know what an audience uh in you know in in the mid 70s would take that crazy number of i mean freeze frames are certainly not new but you know 30 of them a minute <laughs> is very very new yeah well i mean they would have been used in a lot of like 70s cop movies and stuff i guess and maybe that's you know well what was the first movie that i, I think the first movie i saw that did it was the wild bunch but maybe it's even older where they it, during the opening credits they would just you know the guys would be walking around and it would just freeze frame and turn into a photo and put the credit over top i, I mean yeah i mean that's definitely a 70s thing i think yeah, but well the wild bunch was like 1970 or, or in that era i think um I, I just don't know if anyone did it before i mean the good the bad and the ugly is in the 60s does it do it i'm not sure if the whole credit well, does it when uh they introduce the good, the bad. It does. I, I wasn't like, sure if that was all like it fades yeah. to cartoon or whatever. I, I just well, don't know. Not who did in the that actual first. opening credits, but when each character is introduced in the film, they'll it'll freeze frame and it'll say like you'll hear that, I I I, and it'll say who they are. All right. <laughs> okay. So um, should we move on? I mean, we have two other movies here. So uh, keep it going, Sean. All right, well, let's let's jump into uh, Exit Through the Gift Shop then because I think the two are pretty closely related. A lot of comparisons have come up between the two. Um, and this is, of course, directed by Banksy, although uh, that is kind of even up for debate, I think, a little bit. Um, so it's basically a documentary about street art, um, but it's it's told from the point of view of a guy who uh, gets into the scene, starts interviewing people and following them around as they're doing their art. But then the movie slowly morphs into becoming about him. And he actually turns and becomes an artist himself. Uh, so that guy's name is Terry Guetta. Fader. Oh. <laughs> and uh, he and his art, art name is is Mr. Brainwash. So, and I think part of the thing with this movie, I mean, I had heard from the very start, I had heard that this movie was like either fully fake or partially fake. So I don't know where I heard it first, but that like, I knew right off the bat that there was something up with this movie. Whereas a lot of people apparently went in, watched this movie and just took it as a straight up documentary about street art, nothing weird or fake about it and i find that kind of hard to believe but i guess if you hadn't been tipped off it does play fairly straight for the most part um and so i guess my my personal opinion i think this movie is a lot more interesting knowing that it's fake and and assuming that most of it is fake and manufactured i think as a straight up street art documentary it's decent but i don't think that's what makes it interesting um kurt thoughts uh, okay, so I saw it for the first time on DVD when it came out a couple weeks ago. Uh, I know uh, Gamble, uh, who's um, not here tonight, is uh, a huge fan of this movie. He's been sort of talking about it on many episodes of the uh, Row 3 Cinecast. 
and I don't know what my expectations were. I actually, when I heard the title, I thought it was more about um, just sort of the commercialization of art, and it is about that. <laughs> it is very, very much about that, but I don't know. I, to me, the movie works because it plays as the ultimate pastiche farce of the art world even far more it feels like a spiritual remake of f is for fake i don't think it's as fun or sophisticated or it it feels itself like it wants to to not play with you in the same kind of nice way that wells wants to play with you it wants to really keep its cards a little closer to its vest um and uh, but i don't know it, it just i don't think the film's all that well made uh, whereas F for Fake looks cheap, but is extremely well-crafted. Uh, this movie, I don't know. I, I, I almost feel it has the same thesis. Like, for the first hour, <laughs> they're, they're telling you the truth, and then it just becomes some wild fantasy for the thing. And that doesn't make it bad. I mean, it it has, I think, a lot to say about, um, you know, how eventually, you know, how art is always made by people borrowing elements and that's why there's always this argument for the public domain so people can keep building on it but i think this film looks at the art world as a snake eating its own tail and it the snake is eaten right around <laughs> so that there's actually nothing left because i mean this guy's parroting warhol who was parroting someone else and 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 i think i like it like the argument we had before the what the documentary has to say, I think, is more interesting in Exit Through the Gift Shop than how it goes about saying it. So. Okay. Okay. Um, I, I think that this movie is interesting because it actually, F for fake, looks at the, the value of art and the, you know, the role of art dealers and putting a price on art and the signatures and all of this stuff. But this film actually looks at the, or, or it criticizes the art itself which i found interesting especially seeing as it's coming from a street artist that's very popular right and i i can't say i'm a huge fan of a lot of the art in the film even the stuff that's supposed to be considered amazing art um so i i thought it was interesting once the you get to the last third of the film and and mr brainwash puts on this show and um the art is so competent that it's it, it could you could totally see it being passed as you know great modern street art um it, you could a lot of the stuff uh would feel very comfortable on a lot of album covers i think and no one would question it and he did do madonna's greatest yeah, hits apparently album cover. and um i thought that was interesting that you know the the end of the film when they they kind of say you know they're not sure who the joke is on or if there's a joke at all and banksy gives us comment about never helping or ne not wanting to encourage everyone to do art anymore it's like the opposite theme that ratatouille had about cooking <laughs> um i thought that was a pretty interesting and ballsy message to end the film on it's it's like the total downer ending if if you're an artist i think um it i would imagine it would make you kind of reconsider what your own art means and your your own approach to art and and um your favorite artists and right 
Um, and I, I think the movie, yeah, it's not as as well crafted as F for Fake, but it's it's a very fun and uh, watchable movie. It it just carries itself along uh, in a completely palatable way that I think anyone, practically anyone, could. It's like Spellbound or something. You could sit and watch it. You don't have to be necessarily interested in the subject matter. Maybe a little bit more here in the first third, but the the characters are are engaging enough to hold your interest. And I think the promise of some unusual terrain uh, is a, a a good one, like to keep you hooked to the the screen. James, uh, I had mixed feelings about this movie. Um, I guess I I came into it completely ignorant of. Of the whole deal, I, I have seen the Andre the Giant stickers around, but I, I'd never heard of Banksy or had any idea about this whole um, street art thing. I mean, I guess I, you know, I've seen this kind of thing around, so I, I know something like it exists, but I, I, I really didn't know anything about it, and I'm starting to feel a little nervous that I'm a, I'm kind of, <laughs> I might be one of the hoodwinked masses. <laughs> I, I guess I thought, I, I thought it was. Uh, uh, pretty much a you know a, a documentary that kind of had a unique you know a, a unique beginning and um so i i guess i i feel like there was a sort of level of smugness on the part of the film that that didn't sit well with me um and also um that just that the art the i guess Banksy's art and the art that they show at his his exhibition where Brad Pitt was and everything is there are interesting things to be seen there but for the most part I just I found the art really sort of unremarkable and not very stimulating and um, I felt like the Mr. Brainwash was kind of a huckster to begin with I mean we were introduced to him as this guy who's reselling French tennis shoes as designer originals or you know, he's talking about selling secondhand clothes as, or at least seconds as a, as a designer wear and that sort of thing. And so it, it didn't surprise me that the film went where it did. Uh, and it didn't make me any more or less cynical about art, just that art kind of exists in this strange place, you know, has this strange place in commerce right now. So, and there are a lot of kind of, um, you know, things unraveled in the film, but um, yeah, I, I don't know. Overall, uh, I have lukewarm feelings about the film. Okay, Marina. Well, I think the joke is on Damien Hurst because he didn't get there first. It's just my feeling. <laughs> who's Damien? There is a joke. Who's Damien Hurst? Uh, he's. Um, Who's Damien Hirst? Oh my god. He's a British modern artist who sells... He makes stuff that sells for millions and millions of dollars. He's like one of the highest paid modern artists. I think he sold a, a diamond-encrusted skull for like $75 million or something stupid. Nice. But it's the, it's the same kind of thing. I'm, they're making art that I don't really see the point of it. At least Banksy does have... or I think he does have something to say. Some of his art at least has something to say. But I think between Kurt and Jay, I think you guys nailed this on the head, that it really does feel like he's poking fun at his own work. 
or the, the, the fellow people that work with him. Because, I mean, there's a lot of sort of, I mean, they're showing you all of the art, but a lot of it really doesn't say much of anything, at least not to me, and not to j- the general public. I think the film is really interesting in that, yes, you can sit down and just anybody can sort of get sucked into the whirlwind of what's going on, because it's a really interesting story, whether it's realistic or not, or real or not, or faked or whatever, but I think it brings up some interesting ideas about the art world, but they're all very cynical. You know, this idea that some dude that has no training, nothing to say, you know, sets up this huge art show, makes all of this money, making substandard stuff that he's not even making himself. He's got a factory of people just shelling this crap out. And none of it says anything about anything. I mean, it, it demeans the work that, that the real artists have been doing for, you know, their entire lives. Aha, uh-huh, but is the act of filming the person making art meaning, meaningless and a, a work of art in and of itself? Like, this is that sort of rabbit hole, house of mirrors that you go into with this movie? Well, I, I don't think so, because, I mean, I think it was you that said it. This one doesn't look anywhere as good as F for Fake does. I mean, I don't, I don't really see the artistic merit here. Like, I see it in F for Fake. I mean, as much as I don't think I appreciated it as much as you guys did, I really enjoyed the film just for what it was and what it said about art and fakery. But the whole thing with editing and stuff, it was there, and I thought, wow, that's cool, but I didn't appreciate it as much as you did, though I noticed that it was there. Here, I didn't see anything outstanding. I mean, it's not a particularly nice-looking film. I, I don't think that by capturing it, they're really saying anything else other than... I, I just I don't think that the piece itself is a piece of artwork. I mean, I can sort of see where you're going, and it would be totally up Banksy's Isle to do something like that. But I really don't think that that's I don't see it here. But I and think maybe that's just my not understanding modern art. But I think that's that's the core of my question about the movie is that if it is just a straight up documentary about street art, I think it's not, you know, it's, it's decent. I don't think it's anything mind blowing. And I don't see how anyone who went to see this movie believing that it was completely true and, and, and not even really understanding or thinking that it was Banksy playing some hoax or something. I don't see how somebody could come out of this movie and be like, wow, best movie of the year. This is like amazing. Like the interesting thing is the fact that, I'm assuming at least part of this movie was constructed by Banksy. I don't know if if Terry Guetta is a a real guy, if he's a character. I mean, Mr. Brainwash has a website, has been doing work on his own for a few years now. It's like if if it if it's a hoax, it's a pretty well, intricate hoax. My theory on this is that um that this uh Thierry guy was probably filming them for a number of years. At first I thought, well, maybe they just sort of took the footage and edited the voice in, but it, it, it's, if, if they did that, it's, it's, it's really well done. But, but really I think he, he followed them around and was filming them for a while. And then at a certain point, I think collectively, a lot of these artists decided to make a crack about how their own industry was becoming commercialized so i think a huge chunk of mr brainwash's art is done by all the artists that you see in the movie and what's really funny is that it's so out in the open because they make it like he's ripping off all of them but there are several shots in the movie that i think really point to 
the fact of you know here's where the here's where the found footage stuff like I, I mean the the channel remote control I don't even think that this theory guy is sharp enough to make that, that channel hopping like that to me is the first you know time that Brad Pitt subliminally flashes in the movie although Brad Pitt is in this movie for a second but uh, you know like in Fight Club just to, to say something isn't right here and I think they just keep giving you more signs it's not to say that the, sure he's a real guy and he has a real family and that's his kids on footage and he probably shot most of that footage but that it's just like for fake the first hour is fine and then once we get to his art show he did probably put on that art show but yeah, it did there, ca- there came a point where Theory the Man became Theory the Exit Through the Gift Shop construct. And then they, you know, it's true. He probably did set up a factory and, and there were probably various people. And in those various people, Banksy and the, the guy who did the Obama posters, who's in the movie a lot, and maybe the, 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 uh, um, the Space Invader guy and all, all these other guys seem to just say, let's have a big... Laugh. I mean, if you look at Banksy's first installation, it, 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 it seems pretty clear that this would be the next sort of Well, yeah, step. and I think that's the thing, too. You know it's a Banksy movie. That's the first giveaway. Well, that- even more than that is that the film is so, I think, disingenuous in its own uh, like, hagiography hey, or whatever the word is of Banksy. Like, the whole thing of Banksy being the super target and then as soon as you kick into banks like he's chronicling like five or different like there's like this uh tooth and whatever guy and then there's all these different space invaders and then there's a woman that's putting up posters and they're all shown and then when it gets to banksy the fucking soundtrack kicks in it's like banksy and you know i mean like <laughs> like that to me that editing is f for fake in a way that it's just it may not come out on the first viewing but that there is sort of this really pumping up of Banksy, which I could see an artist like Banksy that accidentally becomes a commercial entity um, finding a way to deflate his own ego. I, I think the movie's cynical not because it's cynical, not because these guys want to shit on their own industry. It's cynical as an artist's reflection of getting rich quick by accident. Like This is how you deflate but that. It doesn't... The thing of... It doesn't matter if it's... Um them wanting to shit on their own industry i think it it for anyone who's not sold on street art it does shit on their own industry whether or not that was their intention or not um but any good art should hold up to scrutiny like you should be able to make a devil's advocate case like i'm not a big fan of street art either uh but i i I actually find the the most interesting thing to me about the street art is the is the performance art aspect of it the fact that you know you got to fly all over the world and it only stays up for a little while and 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 it's completely random like it's not like you go into a gallery like it is now that's unfortunately what happened to it but when it was just like you walk by and you're like what are all these Obey See, that, posters. That's, that's or, I, I love that cool stuff. About, I love yeah. that stuff. But the actual art itself, it, I mean, it's funny that they never bring up the, uh, what was that, like, or advertising, because like, about two years ago, there was this blitz of movie and book campaign advertising that started to take on street art. And there were those guys from that milk and shake and french fry cartoon what the hell is it aqua teen thank you um that they were putting up ads exactly like the street art and they closed a bridge in boston thinking it was a bomb and they never it's funny i have the same problem with 
exit through the gift shop in a way that Marina had with F for Fake. I wanted to find out more about that guy. That how did he get from street art to to making Obama's campaign materials? And I guess that's another documentary. That, but, well, that's the thing. This I don't think this is. Like when when you say you know someone who has no idea that there might be this fake element would watch it and just think oh this is a substandard documentary on street art, I don't think it matters if you know it's if it's fake or not. I, I don't think it is ever a documentary on street art. It's a it's a documentary about this guy who I mean it, it does include street art and I think it does uh, criticize it to a degree but it's it's a film about that guy i mean it's right. that guy's and that, journey and that that is the interesting story i think but i don't think you have to know that there was some faked element to understand that okay this this is not a documentary about, about street art this is something completely different no it's i mean a, it, it you don't have to be on the inside to understand that there's a a, a statement being made about the art um so i don't think it matters like yeah it it would be more fun to think, I think, to think that it was a hoax. It's it's more fun to think that they pulled that off and whatnot. But I don't think it's, you know, detrimental to the whether or not the film works. I think it the film is what it is. It works as what it is. And but it's I, just I an think, added bonus if it's... I guess I think the thing is, I think some people could watch this and think that Mr. Brainwash is a, is a real guy. And maybe he is. I th- but, I but, think there's no question he is. Well, okay, but I mean, whether or not he was created for this documentary, right? Because he exists now outside of the movie doing his own thing, but whether or not that path... Well, he that, did the Madonna album cover before the documentary ever came out. Right. I mean, I, I just look at it as you compare it to I'm Still Here. Casey Affleck was an actor before he <clears throat> did the hoax in that film. They didn't need to create Casey Affleck just to do the hoax, he just agreed to do it because he was in a position to do it. Right. But so what I'm saying, though, is people will think this guy is real, but never catch on that anything's wrong with his art. Because I think... No, 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 no. I think I think very clearly this... Like, you're saying this is a documentary about that guy. I think it's a documentary about bad art. I, I mean, it just, it, no, it well, just has no, to show you the journey. Art. I think it's about art in general. And contemporary art, particularly. But I think it's subtle in how, like, yes, there is that line at the end where Banksy's kind of like, I don't know what to think about this, and I won't encourage anyone to necessarily. But, like, I think, like, people could watch this and see what happens and just think, wow, that's crazy that that guy was, you know, so good at his art that he was able to put a crazy show together and sell it all in, like, one go. Like, I, I honestly think that that's... It feels to me that the film is, like, I, I can imagine the entire film shaking its head in disgust at what's happening on screen. Like, I, to me, it plays obvious that everyone involved, right down to the crew he's working with, saying he's they'll never work with him again. And, and that he's retarded. Yeah, I mean, like, and, the movie is the most unflattering documentary. Even, even with this load of gag documentary subjects, there's hundreds of documentaries that you're never quite sure whether the filmmaker is telling the story or or just using the person as a real life comic prop i mean this is probably the the strongest documentary i've ever seen for making its subject look like a complete tool i've not seen that overnight documentary but um <laughs> but i mean they right for almost from moment one i mean he's goofy he's framed goofy he everything about 
what he does. Like when Banksy says, well, we needed him to document our movement uh, because he was the only one that knew how to do a camera. Cut to him walking into a empty garbage dumpster and going, fuck. You know, I mean, like it's it's edited to take itself down. And that is not by like nothing in editing. The, the amount of time it takes to edit stuff, nothing is by accident, which is why I find that film that he made. And I wish, I don't know, who has the, does anyone have the super American package? I have the cheap ass mongrel Canadian DVD, but um, it's, it, a, it's, it's a lawyer's edit, yeah, which is not a, the full thing. Another sort of hint that this is, that it, it's a, a, a hoax or whatever that, you want to call that it. That movie, like I wanted to see the 90 minute it's, movie. It's only what twenty minutes on the DVD. Ten, ten minutes, I think. Ten and, minutes, and, and four at least four of them are in the film, right? Um, but they claim that they couldn't put it on the DVD because of rights issues. But I mean, it's the perfect out that you know, absolutely. It's because it didn't exist. But the moment in the film for me that is the tip off that something is up is when he falls off the ladder and then suddenly he's being wheeled around in a wheelbarrow yeah, yeah, and definitely. and that's the one moment they didn't actually catch on film and it's shown in stills yeah but who is around like there's there's a lot of well, quaint they were around when... filming him for everything yeah i mean the the fact that uh that results in this sort of again making him look like it, an it ass, just like adds an one other thing to make him look like he's incapable or, or that he's clumsy or that he's a buffoon and to me, that 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 moment feels. There's even some. I again, I talked about this on the Film Jump podcast, but I can't remember the actual dialogue. But there's some lines in there that are like Christopher Guest level lines yeah. of him saying these ridiculous things about his art and his own like you know delusions of grandeur, and is he's completely unaware of how he's sounding and how he comes across, which I don't think is totally there in the first hour of the film i think in the first hour of the film yes he's kind of bumbling and whatnot but he seems fairly genuine and he seems he he it seems like his character does take like a, a he does give into the dark side and for the first hour you would never think that that guy would give into the dark side i don't think but i think it's by design right and i, I like that's but that's why i'm saying that i think there's a lot of stuff in the movie that is kind of subtle like I totally agree with you guys. I pick up on all the farcical elements of this movie, but I think there's people who don't. And I think if you don't pick up well, on the fact that every... he is goofy and comedic and, and all that on purpose, then I think you could miss out on a lot of the... Every great hoax movie full fools its contemporary audience and then looks completely stunningly obvious in hindsight. It's just the nature... Of yeah, the beast, but I'll tell you the dead giveaway in this movie that it's a hoax is that when he throws all of his videotapes casually in the thing, he has them elastic band. No one who throws their tapes casually into a bin and doesn't care about them afterwards would bother to. You know how fucking hard it is to like stretch those <laughs> elastics and turn them to get those rows of tapes. Um, that's obviously intern work. <laughs> <laughs> well. One other but thing, just quickly that I mean, the what is the point of you know what if people miss these subtle things in the film? I mean, I I don't think it really matters. No, I, I think guess the story I mean, everyone... carries itself enough, anyways, that people can kind of get caught up in other elements. Yeah, but I just I guess I'm just like saying I think it plays at different levels, and I think it's better on a certain level than you know if you missed some of the other stuff. But I guess most movies are probably like that. Um, but one thing I want to mention, I actually I got an email from somebody a while back, um, 
who uh, the life remote control movie that we're talking about that was made by Mr. Brainwash or whatever that we seem to think is probably fake. Um, this was from Julian, and he, he uh, emailed after we talked about it on the Film Junk podcast, but it's interesting. He said there's a YouTube channel for life remote control that was created in 2006, and it has three promotional trailers for it that were all added in 2006. So, I mean, yeah, it's possible that, you know, this movie was in production way back then, but his art show didn't happen until 2008. way I look at it is, is the way any good liar comes about doing it is that you take things that have huge built-in chunks of truth. You don't create anything out of the blue. You pull things and you go, yep, that's got a history. Let's slowly meld this. I mean, a film production is is a couple years just to get it through post and everything. So you can still be molding things and, and, and whatever. Um, so yeah, like just because this exists on a YouTube channel doesn't mean that it was made in the context that it was presented Correct. in the film. Like he might not have even known Banksy or shown it to him. Banksy didn't necessarily say, oh, we got to do something different with this. It could just be, as you said, an element that they can say, oh, well, we could use this and, and say that was what you had attempted to make. And then I step in and do this. And But I mean, when you start talking about that, it starts to sound kind of conspiracy theory. Like, you know, you can still what, do that over but beers. I mean, you can do that yeah, over beers. It doesn't matter. Like, that's the thing. It's, it's fun to talk about. Yeah. And to me, it just doesn't really matter. It's one of the cases where, I, I, like I said, it would, all, it would almost be more fun if it was fake. And that, you know, they pull it all together. But in the end, I don't think it, it really matters too much. What did people think of Risa Fan's voiceover in this? Cause, I, I loved mean, it. We, but it's knowing. Like, it's the way he... I mean, I love Risa Fan's as an actor. And he does ultra goofy and total hangdog. Like, he, he vacillates between those modes. And this... Every moment of this voiceover, to me, when I was watching it, again... You're talking about the theme of the movies that we're doing, and you know I'm just coming off several viewings of F for Fake and so forth. But you know, and that is where he knew that his life would change forever. I mean, like the yeah. <laughs> that voiceover is overbaked. Like, mm-hmm. but again, probably by design. Yeah. But you know, if you're if you're thinking that this was a you know tighten your you know, button the top button kind of documentary. There's a a pretty solid clue that the filmmakers are having are truly getting their kicks from making this, irregardless of fact or fiction. It, it, the, the documentary, I think, it, it's not always clear, and 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 often a sense of humor is not always clear. You know, it, there's so many different flavors of humor, but that voiceover, uh, uh, you know, it ain't the voiceover from F for Fake, which is wonderful, and it's got Wells's voice, and, and Risa Fenn's voice isn't quite as imposing, but he does make a lot of it. It's, it's a very good performance uh, in the movie. Well, I just wanted to bring up something, actually, that James mentioned earlier. Um, I found it interesting that, James, you thought that this movie had a smugness to it, uh, which... I guess I could see that, but I actually like. I feel like F for Fake has a lot more smugness to it than this movie does because I think, especially the fact that Banksy in this movie, assuming he's the one who directed it, is a lot more of like a background character, and you know he's got the voice changer on, and like he just like he's not 
I mean, although you did bring up the point, Kurt, that when he enters the picture, the music changes, and he is treated a little bit like a rock star in this. But I, I, I just personally felt like FFA had more of a smug tone than this movie did. Well, I think that when the whole exercise of um, Mr. Brainwash going through basically turning himself into a kind of phenomenon slash artist that Banksy, this the status he had during the, the film, uh, he turned it, you know, he turned it on its head. He, he, he made himself into a phenomenon before he was an artist. And it, and to me, the, I guess qualitatively, I appreciated Banksy's stuff more than Brainwash. Um, not much more, but, but I did. And so turning it on its head like that with, the same, the phenomenon being the same, it it causes you to question the, legi- the legitimacy of the whole thing, right? And at the end, uh, they had that sort of title or that what do you call it, an an intercard or whatever, it, and that said that, um, you know, Banksy will not make another film about art again or something like that. It it, it kind of it tries to preserve his legitimacy while obviously showing brainwash to be illegitimate or at least i felt trying to convince you he was illegitimate when i i'm not really sure uh that distinction could be drawn between the two of them well i think the difference is banksy made the movie and he didn't but i yeah i, I kind of see your point i but again it's like this is kind of what banksy does like he does art that you know messes with people in some way and I mean, yeah, this movie could have been called instead of Exit Through the Gift Shop, which obviously hits at the commercialization angle, which is a big part of this movie. This movie could have just as easily been called Hype, the movie, because that's really what it is. It's it's creating or it's 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 myth making. And, and, you know, the movies are made to make myths, you know, in, in you know, you print the you print the story of the legend, not the story of the man. I mean, most people like. Whether they admit it or not, but deep down, I think most people like big myth-making movies rather than grotty, trying to get at the the core truth movies. I mean, you do like to be spun a tale. People like to be fooled. I mean, that's again feeds into the magician act. You you don't go to a magician to debunk the magician. Magi- magician. Have you been drinking? <laughs> uh, you go to a magician to be fooled. But you you want you go in with the with the understanding it's, it's that the you're it's the handshake fooled. you make yeah. that he's going to fool you and if he doesn't then you know he's fucked up the part of the deal because you're going in willingly to be to to be fooled and i don't know um I, I guess the hype angle plays in this but i mean some of banksy's art and some of his stunts are downright bad like it's embarrassing the disney prank in this movie i, I think that that whole segment should have been cut out of the movie it's so awfully done I, I i don't know maybe some other people can comment on that but i mean disney's an easy target and i love bashing disney as next as much as the next person but like that guantanamo stunt i mean that's that was pretty amateur hour all around well it reminded me of something out of uh uh the yes men or whatever yeah i mean the but i think the whole film can be looked at as it's not so much for me that scene is not so much like holy fuck that says so much to those people on that train but 
<laughs> I, I think the important thing with that scene is just that uh, the whole thing of him, uh, Mr. Brainwash, being in, interrogated and yeah, there's not an cracking. Story it's, 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 it's actually in there for the narrative rather than, but it, but it, in a way, it, but it, it, it takes, also shows off his work well, as well. No, but it does, like, but badly. Like, it, it, I mean, maybe they put it in there. You're right for narrative reasons, and they're like, oh fuck, we'll bite the bullet on this. But that, that's like the. Even the like you said, like with Buddy and the trophies and Gates of Heaven, like it's the lamestly staged. Um, like even the like the, you know the, they could edit what they wanted to show. Like it, it, it just looks downright goofy. It doesn't look like it has any social message. Like when you see the the, the blow up doll on the fence and the train going by and them stop the train, it doesn't resonate at all. And and, and no one on that train is 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 looking at it and going. Whoa, post nine eleven, blah blah blah. Like it's just like someone put a fucking orange suited dummy there. Like it, it's it's just bad. That's bad art um, in there. But I but. think it did it did freak some people out in the sense that they stopped the train and they were like, "What is there a bomb oh, here?" Or like, I, I guess. But again, showing that 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 Disney is a top down controlling fascist organization uh, operating in the name of family fun. I mean, you know any. Like uh, ad busters, yes men. You know they they do that before they've had their coffee in the morning. I mean it's <laughs> not like it, you can say like some of the stuff that Banksy does is is interesting and and feels a bit bleeding edge the way the art is inserted into terrain or whatever. This is just so clumsily done, and I guess that's another point in the idea where we're shifting the focus onto. Mr. Brainwash. It's the final, I guess, handshake that is trying to tell you that Banksy trusts Brainwash. But I mean, it's I think it's pretty unnecessary to the movie. I think it could have been cut out. I wouldn't have it wouldn't have suspended my disbelief or enabled my disbelief or whatever the phrase is anymore, whether that scene was there or not. It just seemed like as clumsy as the the photography ladder falling off bit where that, that just feels it broke the facade for me. Well, I just think that it just isn't a, a subjective art th- element. I mean, the, to me, the scene, I agree, like the, the actual statement of what, what he did and the, the, the art itself is not great. But I think the scene is interesting, just like I said, that he covers for him and he doesn't break. And Banksy then says, that's when I knew... I could trust him, and it's it's a there's a suspenseful. Moment I mean, there. yeah, I mean, it's a a thing. It's a more of a narrative thing, but I mean, it's a, it's like I'm sure there are a lot of people that watch this film and and hate it just because they don't like Banksy's art, and it's like I don't think that's the the way to watch this film. I mean, that that's like watching, you know, a, a documentary about whatever the Dallas Cowboys. That this is this amazing film, and then just being like this movie sucks because I hate the Cowboys. My team is the Raiders or whatever, you know, like, or like when Greg watched, um, the, some kind of monster film, the Metallica film, and he couldn't get past the fact that they were making Metallica look bad. So he just turned off and was like, not interested or whatever. Um, it's similar. I I think even though, you know, you, you just have a problem with this specific scene. I think some people could write the film off completely just because they're like, that's not art. I don't like this. This is stupid. Click. Reed probably wouldn't appreciate it. <laughs> well, but but the movie's fundamentally asking, you know, what is art? And and I mean, it goes. It, it it's just like, um, you know, watching some movie on 
capitalism and in the, in the 1960s of capitalism getting out of hand and then you look at where we are now and you go boy wasn't that quaint <laughs> in the 1960s that this was their doomsday scenario is like it's way worse you know it can get just crazy much reality once we get there is far crazier watching science fiction films what their future is and what the future ends up being and and so forth i i just i find that that some of the art statements in this movie just seem overly pat or overly quaint and and just well so do the all of the uh, uh, a lot of the art in that show but it doesn't mean that the the sequence of the show is holds no power just because the art in that show is is just as one note or or cliched or you know um I mean, is the problem just because it's Banksy's art and he's... No, 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 I, I, I guess the, the, the problem is, it's not even a problem, it's just that they, they look at the, uh, the art in this movie, it's, it's so clearly telling you what is bad art and, and, and what isn't, like the movie is not, um... The movie becomes quite authoritative, I think. Um, you know, like everyone just starts shitting on and, and the way the movie is framed. It, like, the, the, you know, theory is like a straw man that the, that the, the movie builds up just, just to burn and, and just so that they can. And in a way, it does validate the other working artists in this movie by taking him down. I don't know if that's a bad thing or a good thing, um, but, uh, you know, ultimately this. I don't know. I, you See, look at I, F for Fake and, and the fakery and the authenticity and what paintings are selling for and how those paintings are made and, and what goes into it in the, you know, 1975 era. Uh, and then now you look at, you know, all of it. It's just it's stencils and spray paint and, and, and whatever. Um, it just, it's just interesting in how, like you said, the, a lot of the art world, the modern art world has just gotten really wonky with cash. But I, I don't think that they're completely oblivious to that in this. Oh, like they're I, highly aware. Well, I mean, when they show, when you say there's a clear distinction between good good art and bad art, I don't think there is. I mean, I I think it's left to be up to you. But I think they are probably just as comfortable if there were people that decided that some of the pieces in Mister Brainwash's show was good. I don't think all the people that came in that you know talked to him and said, "Oh, that's interesting." I don't think they're painting those people as as being idiots. I think what, to me, I got that they're just questioning everything. Yeah. I mean, including their own work. But they're questioning it. They're, they go about questioning it by all of the other street artists shitting on theory. Like, Which I, is I, awesome. I mean, because you could, you could say, and then the one guy says he doesn't know who the joke yeah, is no, on. that's the line is the, the whole movie on... is in that particular line he's like i don't even know if there is a joke like it's just saying the world is there and this is the way things have panned out and great artists get ignored and bad artists get 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 praised i mean why does you know stephen king sell so many novels when you know some other smaller horror guy doesn't you know i i it just it a lot of this thing it, it, there's a big, big scene in the movie or a big voiceover by the obama poster guy whose name i keep forgetting shepherd fairy shepherd fairy um where he says he created the obey posters um you know they they were a meaningless image and but he figured if he posted them enough then 
they become legitimate because people have seen them in more than one place. Like, you know, legitimacy, again, is generated by people talking about it, uh, which I, I suppose in any, you know, it's the same in effort fake while well, they value the art. It's, it's people's opinions that legitimize things. But then once people start talking about it, then it steamrolls in and now it's fully it's fully legitimate on its own. And so he's created, um, he's created meaning out of meaninglessness, not to fulfill anyone just for the act of creating meaningfulness. It's almost like a, it's, it's almost an abstract, like it, it's like one of those you know, Schrodinger thought experiments. Like it, 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 but in this case it's done as performance art. And I guess what makes the street art documentary more compelling than maybe, uh, you know, a cubist art documentary or whatever is that there's such a visual element to the art because you got people scaling walls and you've got the cameras on night vision settings and 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 you've got you know danger um, involved as opposed to just some guy sweating in a cheap basement apartment trying to get his vision onto a canvas. Uh, here you have people, you know, running around and doing things. I actually start to lose focus with the movie when it become when it gets into the gallery world i, I didn't mind the elephant because the elephant now re-injects this element of danger and it and then it starts to play into the animal rights and everything but i guess the only el element of danger in theory's show is illegitimizing the whole movement <laughs> that's the element of danger and i guess as an act of making this movie banksy and company are flirting with the idea well, of illegitimizing. That's their own my movement. point. Is that I, I don't think it's as simple as saying that you know they're putting themselves, or they they're not holding themselves responsible for any of this bad art, and that they're they're putting it all onto Mr. Brainwash. I think that just by making this movie, they're bringing uh, a critical eye to their own work, and then it, you know the way it's presented in the film and where you end up with the film and. Um, I don't think it's it's as clear cut that they they're all aware of of the film they made. Like Banksy is aware of the film he made and how it reads and how they read. Like if we sit here saying, "Oh, it feels like they're trying to s separate themselves from that as being above it." They I they can't watch that and think not think that. I mean, it's again, I think something that's by design. I think they're playing characters of themselves that are like I regret ever letting right. him use my name. I, I don't believe that. I don't believe they regret that. I think they that's a part of it. It's like it's it's all self-critical in my opinion. And I mean right down to you know the the elephant thing, I mean which you know the elephant in the room like <laughs> yeah, give know, me a break. I and the, the, I think there's a a shot of a Banksy dummy in a window and it's spray painted as Banksy sold out which yeah. I assume is a part of the, the piece. So they're very self-aware and probably self-critical of some of the directions that their, their art has gone. And I'm sure they don't like the idea of making art that's completely palatable to the, the world. I mean, I, I'm sure they are completely fine with criticizing their own work and maybe injecting a little bit of that criticism into the audience so that they look at some of their stuff with more of a cynical eye and wonder why is why, why is that art and the 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 explanation of why obey is art i think plays into that it's almost a joke it's like it's it's art because i just put a bunch of them up and you turned it into art you yeah. know and we're aware of that well every and that's the act of art in itself art is art mm -hmm. because people pay attention to it 
Yeah. So I, I didn't, I didn't really get this. I didn't, I got them separating themselves from it as a part of the story and a part of the arc of their characters in the film. Not so much that they, they truly wanted to be up here and Mr. Brainwash down here. I thought it was by design. But I think that's why it's kind of, in a way, a risky movie to make. Because, like James said, it's like, you could walk away from this movie just thinking, well, what, what's the point of anyone's art, you know? And, like, why is Banksy's any better than Mr. Brainwash or whatever? But, of course, Banksy's Banksy, so he already has that kind of... Well, and he's the guy who brought the question up now. So yeah. that's the art he part beat, of he the art He beat everyone well. to the punch. Yeah. <laughs> but... Um, actually, just, I mean, just look at the, that Simpsons opening he did, which is hypercritical of animation and how animation is made. And, but it, it, it itself is animation. And, you know, it, it's, I think he has that in his head, you know, this ability to be critical of his own work and his own, uh, uh, profession, if you want to call that. Well, and the ironic thing about his Simpsons opening uh, was that much of it was criticized as all of that criticism being very old hat, that, mm-hmm. that the Simpsons themselves had done that. But then it, it, it comes down to that. The, the thesis of uh, Theory's artwork is that, you know, they say Warhol tried to repeat celebrity images until they became meaningless but he since he did it first it it took on its own meaning for the act of doing it but theories now made the act of making something meaningless meaningless like it's like and and in an f for fake is where when um clifford irving writes the um uh goes to write the hughes biography and then ends up writing a book about the hoax of writing the book. And then the one filmmaker in the movie says, well, and eventually he'll write the book about writing the book about writing the book. And I just think that when you get self-critical, particularly of your own work, the, the danger or the fun, depending on your perspective is falling into that endless, it's like pointing a video camera into the monitor <laughs> that's watching it and just looking at the doctor who tunnel that it creates. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I was just going to mention offhand that, um, like you kind of said that you wanted more, more info on some of the actual street artists and stuff. I know there's, uh, the beautiful losers documentary, um, that covers like, I think four or five different artists and Shepard Ferry is one of them. Um, might be worth checking out. It's a much more straightforward documentary, but it does talk a little bit about, um, you know, street art becoming commercialized and sold and all and that. And it's kind of straight up. It's fascinating that this is the first, well, I guess I don't know if you could do this with all the other movie club podcasts, but this particular podcast has more supplementary. Maybe it's a function of us doing documentaries, but each one of these films has three or four films that are almost supplemental. Yeah. And they're more straightforward films, like you're saying. It's a more straight up. But yeah, I, I, I guess... I came off thinking that I didn't really like Exit Through the Gift Shop all that much, or I felt it to be extremely inferior. Um, maybe this conversation has convinced me a bit uh, otherwise uh, about the movie, but I, 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 I'm, I'm kind of in the middle on, on, on how I feel about this movie. I, I feel it's almost too pat and too breezy, and it doesn't. It's funny, but it doesn't have that sort of inclusive 
it's mean spirit. It's I, I, yeah, and I, I think I get back to James. I, I think I don't ever find Orson Welles to be smug in in F for Fake. Whereas I, there is some layer of like holier than thouness in in this movie that maybe rubbed me a bit around, the wrong way. I don't know how to verbalize it, but there's something there that itches a part of me that I don't like. Okay. Uh, any final thoughts on Exit Through the Gift Shop? Okay, I guess not. We'll move on, uh, and we'll talk about our last film of the night, which is Catfish. And, uh, I mean, this one also uh, recently just came out on DVD, but it's clearly, as everyone knows, we're going to get into spoilers, but this is one, I mean, you definitely want to watch before hearing what happens, I think. Uh, Directed by Henry Joosten, Ariel Schumann. Schumann? And, um, of course, it sort of follows a um, internet relationship that starts out kind of innocently and becomes something more. And, uh, you know, it's shot almost at times like a, like a thriller. It's got a, like a definite mystery that unravels as you watch it. And um, I guess, like, one thing that I wanted to mention, too, um, with Exit Through the Gift Shop, like, well, I guess we've been talking about a lot of these movies and doesn't matter if it's real or fake. And I think Exit Through the Gift Shop is an interesting one because it, I think most people, even if they find out, even if they thought it was real and they find out it's fake or suspect that it's fake, that doesn't really change their opinion too much in the movie. They're still like, you know what, that's cool and clever. But with Catfish, this has definitely turned into an issue where it's like people start pointing out like, well, how, how could this have happened and didn't they know this ahead of time? And like people start picking out flaws in this movie and saying that it's fake. And as soon as they do that, it falls apart for them and they think it's worthless. Personally, I still think it's a pretty awesome movie. And, um, having watched tall, hot blonde, which is another peripheral movie, very similar story, but the treatment of it is not at all as compelling as catfish. The story is compelling, but the actual presentation is not at all as compelling as catfish. In my opinion, um, what were your thoughts on Catfish, Kurt? Uh, okay, um, I the the act of watching Catfish the first time uh, is, is pretty spellbinding stuff. I think Catfish works immensely because you are it, it, everything. There's a heightened sense of being in the moment that works in in Catfish. Uh, now I did watch it again. Um, for this podcast and it still played pretty good, but it didn't quite play the same way. And I don't think the movie has the density of the other two films to, 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 to hold up to multiple viewings. But I, I, I knew nothing about the movie going in and, uh, I saw it at a film festival. I even talked with one of the directors after I saw the movie. Um, uh, briefly, and again, I'm sure a conversation he's had with many people on the nature of reality and truth in 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 thing. Of course, they were very adamant at at the Q and A that that everything was on the up and up, and that they're you know they the self deprecating, and I guess in a way you could say it's false modesty or not. I don't know that they that they said you know we're not smart enough to make a elaborately schemed film. Uh, but I, again, I, I you got to give. Uh, this movie credit for creating enough interest 
in something that people thought they already knew, but putting a spin on it to make it feel new. Like, I don't think it's news to anyone that people aren't who they say they are on the internet. Like, that's nothing new. But they've told the tale. They've given it an internet aesthetic. I mean, it ain't quite Scott Pilgrim with its aesthetics, but especially at the beginning of this movie, there's a huge chunk, like, with the Universal logo and the the telling things with Google Earth and 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 uh Tom Tom Navigate. I really did like that element. I wish actually there was more. I too often this movie feels like it was shot on you know point and shoot cameras that take video, which I think a lot of it was. Um you know, it, it's a ratty looking movie, but I I did like the way they handled like w- they took far too long I think to get to the to the the, the woman, the, the reveal. And, and, and thankfully, they do spend a fair bit of time on the reveal. And I, I liked all of that. So um, in the end, I, I'm, I'm actually somewhat ambivalent about the movie overall. The first time watching, it really had me. But um, it's not a movie that... Oh, I, there's things I appreciate it, but it's not a movie that overly... I, I would like If I had to rank these three, a catfish would be at the bottom. Okay, Jay. Well, I'll throw it to James and Marina, and we'll. I feel like I've been hogging. They're they've been quiet. James. Oh, go <laughs> James. Um, <laughs> I'm still here. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you guys can go first. Um, for me, this is my favorite of the three. Um, I was, I guess, uh, enjoyed this from the first moment to the last moment. Um. What I liked about it, especially what made me fall in love with it, is when the, there's the final confrontation when they're at the horse farm and um, Neve kind of, um, he gives, was her name Angela, a chance to kind of to come clean and to explain herself. And um, they, it just felt like the, the two of them were on a more level playing field. I don't think that... You know, I don't think that the, Angela is necessarily, like, mentally ill. I just think she was in a really rough place when she was doing this stuff. And I don't feel like they exploited her. Um, I, I just feel like this, like, the, this, the speed with which this technology is moving and the communication is changing is so quickly so far outstripping our, our psychology that people's reaction to it and people on the periphery like like Angela um, the reaction to it you almost feel like uh, are we in a, are we in a position to judge yet you know and I don't necessarily feel like Neve and his friends um, were comfortable very harshly judging her because um, was this whole thing they were engaging in entirely genuine? I mean, does a person who felt the way Neve supposedly felt about Megan uh, for eight months come to terms with it so quickly? I mean, and it sort of, it betrayed the possibility that uh, the whole relationship, the whole dynamic they had existed in in a kind of weird vacuum. A media vacuum. <laughs> Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I'm sorry. I, I, maybe I didn't make any sense. I, I don't know. 
Well, that's the last time I throw to James. <laughs> no, I, that no, that makes sense. No, in so far that um, it, it gets back to the you point a camera at someone. Well, Facebook is a form of camera. Um, you know, you have a certain amount of creative control. You edit what gets shown and and what doesn't get shown, and and people behave accordingly. So this is like the first movie to use Facebook like a camera like because david fincher's facebook movie is a totally different movie i think this is this is one that's really about facebook you know the real yeah. facebook movie yeah right so Mar- I, mean, I don't know it's such a it's such a terribly mannered way of communicating um and it, it's just like suffocating at times i don't know you know not, not to like work this into a plug for from my other podcast, but you know, Matt and I have gone around in circles so much about the, you know, my my sort of love hate relationship with Facebook and and how it all makes me sort of paranoid and everything. And and th- this is a perfect example of why it's just these shenanigans. Some people are just up to no good out there. And um, but well, I mean, it's an interesting thing. You know, you, your brain is kind of like chasing its own tail. Um, and, uh, you know, it gets sloshed around in the process, you know, so you don't really have um, a really, like, um, a real reliable means of, of auditing it. Well, but. I'll give it this. It's better than uh, The Net and Untraceable, two other films about technology <laughs> that are completely clueless. Like, in a, in a way, this feels fairly savvy about how you can use technology. It's no ghost in the machine, though. But have you no. seen The Net 2.0? There's, there's a direct to DVD yeah. sequel of the bet. This doesn't That's surprise me. That's actually a really good title. <laughs> oh, God. Um, earlier, you guys were talking about um, if we should judge documentaries the way we, or if we should review documentaries the way we review films. Um, and I sort of do. And that's one of the reasons I really didn't care for this film. Um, I saw it, I think it was opening weekend in Vancouver. It was insane. Buying a ticket was impossible. We literally snuck in. I mean, you would think it was the biggest event of the movie year. And it was kind of interesting to see it with a full house where you could sort of react to how people were reacting to what was going on on screen. I was bored. I I wasn't interested. I didn't like these characters. I didn't care for the story. I keep thinking, this is stupid. Who would really do this? And I mean, when you get the big reveal, I was just kind of like, seriously, this is what I sat here waiting for? This is your big reveal? I mean, first I thought they were going for, you know, I, I don't even know what I think they were going for. I really thought they were going for some pedophile angle, which really started rubbing me the wrong way. And then when they finally give you the real story or whatever, they, you know, if it is the real story, I was just kind of like, really, seriously? And I just lost interest. I didn't care to discuss it with anybody. I didn't really want to talk about this movie. I didn't want to read about this movie. The whole thing just seemed like so overblown. And I kind of understand this. I think Kurt nailed it when he says this is like the uh, the face, the real Facebook movie because it is. It kind of you know it's the real story of what could happen to people or you know what did really happen to somebody that used this technology. You know. I don't even know if it's inappropriately or I don't I don't I don't even know. I don't really care to be honest. It just this movie does nothing for me. I don't understand the hype. I don't. I just don't get it. 
Well, if you were to analyze a movie based on its executive producers, probably something you should never do. But I, I think in this movie, it's kind of a certain level of awesomeness and that the two key executive producers that have nothing to do with the movie, they just came on board to help sell it. But the two executive producers are Eugene Jarecki, the director of... Andrew uh, Jarecki. There's, sorry, there's two. Why there's, do I confuse? Is he, it's Eugene the director. Is a different. Sorry, Andrew Jarecki is the one who did Capturing, Capturing the, the Freedmans, right? Yeah. So it's the director of Capturing the Freedmans and Brett Ratner. Like, is that not like perfect in every way <laughs> to sum up this movie? Um, I, what did Eugene Jarecki do? Is, uh, is that the guy who did Why We Fight? Oh, yeah, he did. He did something recently. He didn't he do Inside Job? Oh, yeah, I think he did. Jeez, that's confusing. <laughs> so, um, okay, so, Jay, you haven't given... Well, um, you have given your thoughts a few times, but... <laughs> well, I rewatched it for the for the Movie Club podcast. Right. And um, I... I it, it's just a movie that, you know, you really... Um, is it Eugene Jarecki? I just, no, tra- oh. Charles Ferguson did Inside <laughs> Job. <laughs> Why am um, I... Anyways, uh, it's a movie that, you know, in the theater, I, I had a, I, it was captivating. It was, uh, suspenseful. It was, um, Freakonomics, right? That's the one. Yeah. Uh, and, and it did have me on the edge of my seat and I, I did feel uncomfortable for the moments where you were supposed to feel uncomfortable. And then of course, afterwards there was all of this thought of, you know, knowing that there were there's a controversy that, you know, people thought that it, it was fake or elements of it were fake and thinking about that after the fact. Um, and I, I, it, I will say it is, uh, one movie that I just really could not pinpoint how I felt about it. Um, even rewatching it now, I was, you know, going to post on Twitter that I rewatched it and trying to think of what I would give this movie out of four is a tough, thing not that it really matters but um because it does work like it does work as a a piece of um investigative sort of mystery making um sensational cinema but i i think it does fall apart in certain areas as well i think that the the overall message of the film is kind of muddy and and it tries to to grasp it like to hang on to this whole facebook um web 2.0 is that what you call it like um social network the the modern way of communicating idea but i think that is a very shallow overall theme I, i think it's just an excuse to show this this sensational story that probably has just as much of a a spot on i keep bringing it up dateline nbc um it, it's that kind of story. And the the thing that separates this is it's the way it's told. It's told... Well, that's the thing. Tall, hot, blonde. It yeah. feels like a Dateline NBC thing. Yes. This is something different. I mean, there's moments where it's... Well, it's using horror film narrative. Right. It, and like this, the trailer, in the end, I never saw the trailer until after I saw the movie, but the trailer completely sells the movie like a horror movie. And I don't know if your disappointment, Marina, was factored into the uh, web uh, Sunday, or I don't know, the hype based around I mean, it. I, I, that's the thing, though. All I knew was there was this movie, has something to do with Facebook. I never saw a trailer. 
Okay. I mean, I never... So it wasn't that you were sold wrong? Because I I, I talked to several people that complained that um, they wanted, like, a Saw movie because the movie sort of was set up (laughs) to be, like, a Saw movie. See, I I don't get that. Oh, I get it, but I don't uh, agree with it. But I do think that um, it's a matter of, you know, the the whole idea of um, reality and fiction comes into this... Um, you know, does it matter if something's not real? And I, I do think, I, I think the thing is real. I think Angela is real. I think all of that is real. There's just the, the idea of willful blindness where there's a point in the film where I imagine they must have, you know, said, I think we've got something here and then went with it and whether or not that matters. I mean, at, at first I was like thinking to myself that that did matter and maybe it doesn't matter so much, but I think the 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 ability to um, step back and say these guys are douchebags, um, without then including the entire film, is is a tough thing because the, it's their film. Like you take Tall Hot Blonde, spoiler, it's a similar story, but it involves actual murder. And what if the that film was actually made by someone who was somehow, not the murderer, but somehow responsible for the murder? You would then judge that film. You would, it would be tough to sit through that film, no, no matter how good it is. the filmmakers created the problem. But right, the, right. But the weird thing is, the movie is kind of, in a weird way, told by someone who is involved, which I found very strange. Well, that was just, it. I think, a really poor choice, in my opinion. Uh, yeah. But... Still, the the idea with Catfish, I think I've I've figured out the problem for me is that the film is made by the guys who did this, and you don't like the guys, so the fact that they made it and are it, well, it's profiting. not it's not as simple as just like these guys are assholes. I'm not going to like their film. Their film was good, but any sort of ethical thing that problem with the film comes from the fact that the film exists because it was made by these guys. Like if it was a, a third party filmmaker who came in and followed this story. So it might film be, about these guys making a right. film. And then about- you, <laughs> you don't judge the film. Like you're, you don't sit there caught up in the, these thoughts of like, okay, well I wonder how they're benefiting from this. And I wonder how Angela and her family isn't. And I wonder how the husband felt about this. And you know, when I'm watching them waiting outside of the house and talking about how they're going to approach this, I'm, I wouldn't be judging them as harshly or judging the film as harshly as I would be just them. Right. And I, I well, it, it's not as e- I don't think it's easy to say they're complete assholes because it, it's again, because they're the ones making the film. There's an enticement there that, you know, they're documentary filmmakers. They're looking for a subject. And the, the problem is the you can start thinking the reason they're doing this is because they see a film in it. Whereas if there was a third party just following this as it's naturally happening, yes, there's still a film in it, but it's it's not as easy to just completely judge the film and the filmmakers on one page, I think. And watching it again, like they're they're young and they're caught up in it and yes it it could be very easy to just get caught up in it not being completely aware of how it will affect the person but there are some scenes in this movie that i think are just brutal like the even watching it again the scene where she's painting him and and he asks her to talk like megan to me is just brutal like it's uncomfortable and it it's to me tasteless and watching it again seeing 
You mean <clears throat> you mean that you interpret that scene as bringing out the freak show? Yes. See, I do not get that out of that scene at all. I've heard that scene being talked about and that that people interpret Nev or Neve or whatever his name is, body language, as going, holy shit, we're getting great stuff here. I, I didn't see that at all. I, I saw that as real. Like, I actually think that that's one of the more honest mo- moments in the movie. I don't get that at all. I think it's just, you know, completely, not that he's sitting there like, excited but just completely aware that we're here to to finish this we're here like when even when they're at the door and the brother is saying stay strong stay strong stay strong he's not saying that in in a you know keep it together emotionally i know this is tough for you the, he's saying we, it in we gotta a get the footage we've got to get in there we've got to document yeah. this it's it's all you know for for the film which you know i i don't know that i, I don't know well, entirely they debate that, there, I, but, and then i question what ended up on the cutting room floor and what made it in the movie because there's about three or four points in the film where they debate continuing like obviously you know they continue because you're watching the film but but they you know those scenes are intentionally included because the filmmakers are aware that certain audience members are going to be so in a way it's like owning owning the question and not having it thrown right. at the film as criticism but obviously they don't own it well enough because a lot oh, no. of people still throw it as out as criticism but no i i don't know maybe marina and james should comment on that particular because i think that's one of the key scenes in the entire you know it's a it's a linchpin to a degree of of the whole like narrative part of of the film uh how did you guys feel about that particular scene well um I'll jump in just because Marina said she didn't want to talk about it. <laughs> so I guess I'll go first. But um, I, I actually found that scene kind of touching. I, I don't know. Uh, yeah, I mean, the guys are douchebags. Uh, but, I mean, they're they're like, the, the, you know, it's like you can't, it's like that whole thing with like the scorpion on the turtle's back or whatever and he shocks him with his tail and stuff. I mean, yeah, they're douchebags. I mean, that's, this is like their whole deal. And, and, uh, um, I, I just think that, yeah, she, she was kind of lovably off kilter. But I guess the sadness I saw in Neve was like, it's sort of like his whole, like, I just, I'm not 100% convinced that this wasn't entirely not a fantasy of his. I mean, yeah, I don't care how big of a douchebag a guy is, right? But but this, like, beautiful girl uh, is, is, like, singing songs to him and, and they're texting romantic notes back and forth. I mean, you've got to at some point question whether this is true or not. Uh, you know, and... Um, I mean, I, I don't mean to be graphic, right? But the, that scene where he's lying in bed and and he's telling the you know reading the text messages they sent back and forth, w- what he was doing was, you know, masturbating. Not in the bed at that moment where the scene was taking place, but whenever he, he whether or not he was actually gratifying himself when he wrote these text messages back and forth, I guess we'll never know. <laughs> <laughs> but he, but. What, I think what we can assume was, was essentially he he was masturbating and 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 that's how like that's how the, the this this uh this technology is like supposedly bringing us closer together no 
it's 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 making us more isolated and we're kind of we're kind of in our own little worlds and 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 you know and that just, underscores the awkwardness of their actual confrontation like you mentioned before that where where they're at the like the horse farm it's a, it's in long shot i think but you can sense the the actual the social awkwardness in real life versus the somewhat in control technology layer removed less awkwardness in facebook life is that what you're trying to say um yeah yeah i think that's what i'm trying to say it's um but what but what about that scene is is touching like it do you think his request to have angela speak like megan again is because he wanted to jerk off once more i mean (laughs) it, it was because he wanted her to fess up and he wanted her to it's almost like this is it's payback time it's like you 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 told me you were someone that you're not i want to hear that voice show me that voice like expose yourself and it's not as blunt as that but i mean to me that's what i got from the scene it was he felt a resentment towards her for it if it if you know it's real or not i don't know but um that it was all a confrontation it was like you know, we're going to show up, we're going to bombard this person and we're going to make her fess up. Um, even if, you know, what, what does it actually mean? Like what, well, what see, is her I actually fessing got up Neve, mean? I actually got the sense that <clears throat> Neve was being hurt in that scene. Like, well, I, I did. I, I got the sense that he like, you know, you fuck him. Like, <laughs> no, 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 no. But I, I mean, the, he knew way ahead of time that that it wasn't what it was. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. But this is the this is the to me this is it, it's a, it's a it's an interesting visual moment. And whether or not you say it, it, there's like the wrong ethic, moral, blah 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 reasons for doing it. Um, I'm not going to deny that there's emotion on both sides for that, staged or not. And I mean, if it takes that, it, sometimes you get the right response for the wrong reasons. And and I think that that scene is, it's murky. I but, feel the, the the main issue for me is that the emotion on her end is 100% genuine, 100% painful. And, you know, you look at what's around her and the emotion on Neve's end, even if there is some there, it's going to be okay, Neve. You're going to go back to your, your office in New York City and you're going to find another girl in 10 seconds to bang. I mean, yeah, I well, I I agree with you, Jay. That that scene did ring a little <clears> bit <throat> false to me. How? And, and I think I think the thing is with Neve, like I felt like in parts of the movie he was acting, and that kind of bugged me a bit. But the one scene that real he really sold me on, which happened earlier, which we were already talking about, is the horse uh, farm scene when he has to. He knows he has to, for the movie to continue, he has to confront her about it. And he does it in a way that I didn't find... I found it like he was, like, sensitive enough to her and managed to get her to talk about it in a way that was acceptable. It was very awkward and uncomfortable to watch, but it was also suspenseful and it worked for the movie, and and that scene worked for me. It could have ended there. It could have been, like... Because she, she fesses up there. Yeah. She's like, yeah, I know, I know. And the look on her face alone is... Okay, he knows. I know that he knows. She knows that I know. <laughs> Done. Instead, it's like, all right, 
Now get into this chair, draw me, and talk like her. <laughs> but but there's another there's another element to that scene or to the subsequent scenes as they're hanging out at the house, which is that she does have feelings for Neve, and like if she wanted them to leave. I think her reaction would have been a little different. Like, I think she would have definitely been like, get the hell out of my house. Like, like they were, they, she wanted them around. She wanted it, him around. You know why? Because she's desperate and she's crazy. She's schizophrenic. She like rewatching this movie and listening to her talking on the phone to him, making up lies that are just like the most, the weirdest sort of like, peripheral lies like um I, I can't remember the exact example but she's talking on the phone about like things that are happening off uh, uh the conversation that she's clearly making up and like all these people on facebook different identities oh the thing of the brother saying like uh accusing neve of of not appreciating the song that was sent to him like multiple personalities disorder i mean maybe you know it's fine it's it's facebook she's creating a, a fantasy world but the reason she wants him to stay is because she's completely desperate and miserable and crazy and he stays and he decides i'm gonna stay and i'm gonna make her talk about how she hurt me and i'm gonna make the audience sympathize with me it's like, you're kidding me. You want me to sympathize with you? The guy who lives in New York City is young and attractive and has a, he's a budding photographer. Uh, I mean, but I think it, to me, it seems very, it's odd to me. Like, it, it's trying to build sympathy and a connection between these two people that have zero connection. That connection is gone. It was never there. It's fake. It's, at this point, it's a show. And it's only a show for him. It's not for her. She's completely caught up in it. It's completely genuine. And they're the ones that are in her house filming someone really feeling the things she's feeling. And they'd, they've already come to terms with this a long time ago. So well, to, I, I disagree. I, I still think that the... I, st I, I, I don't know about the two guys with actual director credits, but the main guy who, you know, he's he's the spotlight of the film, but it's also him you know that that went through this weird relationship and 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 you know yeah okay so they came to terms with it on paper uh but on well, paper versus being right there I, I still think that there was closure for him in those in those scenes i, I agree that what? i agree that they have more um control of the situation and there's more of a, a self-awareness on the, on their part but they're filmmakers um but i i i don't think it's valid to say that okay yeah you should feel more for angela i agree 100 percent. but i'm not saying that it's a 100 zero situation i i think the moment that you feel for nev or neve is the moment where they're playing the songs back and he says i feel like an idiot i feel like i've been duped there, yeah. I felt for him. But then that was then, it. Then, then you felt that the it was like, from there right. on in, it was revenge. It's revenge. And he even gets to a point where he's like, I don't want to do this anymore. You know, and his brother's like, well, you know, you're the one who signed up for this. I didn't sign up for this. You're directing me. He's like, well, you're in the film. But then but it gets that's to... all before... Okay, but it's It after, gets to a point that, yeah. where suddenly he Neve has this change of heart. And he's like, let's do this. 
let's go find them let's get them let's you know <laughs> figure out who's behind this and uh, he's be- he's belting the buckle and putting the camo exactly. paint on and locking in grenades <laughs> they might as well have had a scene of that <laughs> a, a i mean that's montage that's not to say that what happens is completely worthless <laughs> um and it wasn't in- interesting or or didn't trigger emotion in me or whatever but that scene in particular, I think, could have. I think without that scene, they could have alleviated a lot of the the criticism that was hurled towards them. And if it were again, if it were a third party filmmaker that were, was just following it, then it would just be like, these guys are wow! I can't believe these guys went there. And I'm sure the filmmaker making that film would have heightened that douchebaggery in their <laughs> their version of the movie. Well, two other scenes I wanted to draw attention to one of them's in the film and and one of them isn't in the film but is on the extras um so the the one that's in the film is angela's husband like when when the filmmakers brutally explain the movie um and and i i hate that scene um what, it's what, where which, they get the title where he's talking about i, I thought sometime that scene your, was awesome. your other scene is in there him as a person i find it fine but going back to the judging a documentary by its filmmaking technique um that might as well be the scene in million dollar baby when hillary swank talks about having the courage and the will to put her dog down so like i mean that's you know well i mean i found the actual i mean whether it's real whether it's true whether this guy said that speech or or, i believe 100 percent he said it but um I don't know. I just find it sort uh, it, of. It, it, it seems it's a movie cheesy condescending. If you think it's condescending to me. It seems cheesy if you think that the 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 title existed previous to this conversation. Of course, but I mean the, of the the title was pulled from that conversation. I know, I know, and and maybe I just I don't know. Maybe uh, to I have me, a it just seems like that. it 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 he, is a no brainer. I mean, yeah, he that guy just happened to come up with something kind of poetic, and they pulled something out of it and said, let's. I, I certainly oh, wouldn't that. wouldn't look at that and be like, okay, fuck this. It's, no, it's, it's not cheesy. It's not a deal breaker, but I don't know. I just I'm always a little ill when it's it's like I, I can be on board with with chasing Amy until Kevin Smith comes in and actually explains chasing Amy to me, and and I felt that that scene, even though like you said, it's kind of a chicken and egg uh, in how the title comes about, but. I don't know that. I, I, yeah, that, that scene's sad. I, that's one thing that I will give uh, more of a pass to in documentaries than I will fiction is that sometimes when something like that just works out so perfectly, it's above writing. It, it just if that was written, if that this was a, a right. scripted film, then yes, that would that would seem cheesy. But because it's real and because you know it just worked that that guy happened to tell that story and it fits so perfectly, it's just above. Uh, it, it can't be touched for being uh, cliched or cheesy or, or obvious or, or clumsy to me. It just feels like uh, it's simpatico. Is that the right word? Like it, it's just, uh, you, you know, <laughs> it, it, it just works so perfectly. Yeah. It pulls it all together. And I, I would, you know, I, I guess I give it a pass for that. Um, and I have in other movies, like, you know, there's a lot of scenes in, in other documentaries where it's like, if this Anvil, you know, if that movie was written, it would just be a standard three act comedy that has some funny moments. But because they they managed to take a, a documentary film and structure it as 
uh, uh, something that plays like Spinal Tap or whatever, it's given, it's elevated a little bit. Otherwise, it would just be like, oh, this is like Spinal Tap, but not as funny. Uh, Sean, like that scene, dude. Is... I I didn't have a problem with it. I mean, I felt bad for that guy too, but I, I mean, felt I... the worst for that guy. He was the most oblivious. Like, there's it, it, the one thing about uh, Catfish is that you can actually parse the level of how much information each character has, and and that guy's he's at the bottom. Yeah. <laughs> him and him and Abby are at yeah. the bottom of the list. Yeah, and he's so sincere, and like when they're asking him, like who do you think we are or whatever? And he's like, Oh, you're, you're one of her best customers and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, I don't know. I like to me that just uh, as well, um, is like a, a target on Angela. I, it just seems like, Oh, she's here's look what she's doing to her husband. She's lying behind his back. And it's like, it's a little more complex than that i think like she she may have been playing around with this poor 24 attractive 24 year old new york city filmmakers feelings but she certainly didn't expect them to show up at her door with cameras and uh, some flowers ready to uh you know like chris hansen from dateline nbc <laughs> to catch a predator but oh as I've said before, it makes for some pretty uh, captivating <laughs> filmmaking. I mean, so what? What's the other scene? I'm curious about okay. the deleted scene. Um, the other scene is uh, so the woman and th this shows their their style of getting what they want to get. So you know what I'm going to say yeah. before I say it. Um, they're the woman that is used as the face of Angela, the, the woman, Megan, the, Megan yeah. um, that, that, that he cuts out and puts in the other picture. And there's all these pictures of her, like with a guitar and drinking and, and all that. Well, she's a fashion photographer and model and, and, and a multi-purposed artist that uh, lives in some big American Just city. Let me interrupt one second. Yeah. If there was a, ever a scene that I felt was, guilty of being completely clumsy and like heavy handed. And it's the scene of him being cut out and put right, beside put her in, put in beside because her. it's clearly it's done too, after the fact. Yeah. And it's clearly done as a, you know, visual summary of how they're feeling. That's the one I could do with that. Well, but see, uh, but see, I like that. Um, I like that because I'd liked all of the elements of catfish that used regular mundane internet screens as a film telling aesthetic i felt so that did was i except that one new. because that feels like something a 12 year old clumsy <laughs> um so anyway back to the other scene it's uh it, it's on the extras on the disc i, I don't know if it is I, or, or, or i saw it's it on, on the web or it's on 2020 the 2020 show but uh they they caught in contact with this woman because they wanted to bring her into the documentary because she's also been one of the used and, 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 and she would be even further down than the guy that gives the catfish story mm -hmm. on the oblivious level. Cause she has no interaction with anything. She's her image has been appropriated and she's completely unaware of it. Um, so they contact her and they want her reaction to being told that her identity has been stolen as a masturbatory aid um, <laughs> for uh, for Angela to offer Neve, and so, but they don't tell her. Like they say, they're doing a documentary on fashion photography, and could they meet to have a pre-filming? 
discussion. So she comes with her boyfriend, fly flies down or wherever. I don't know how far apart they to were. New York to New York, Vancouver, and then they just sort of boom spring it on her. And that when I saw that scene. Like, I, I was actually more on board with the catfish side of things. But when I saw that scene, I mean, that's sort of a character revealing scene of the filmmakers, just that they did it that way. Yeah. Like, that they, again, like Jay's problem, which is not hugely my problem with the film, but I, I can see why you, you have this issue with the movie. Because now they're, 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 again, they're elevating the film over real people's you know emotions like it's a movie about playing with your emotions and yet the filmmakers are doing far more fucking around with people than Mm -hmm. what's going on within the film which actually makes this dovetail awesome with f for fake in the magsy film even though it's not about art it starts out about the abby's art and and photography and and whatever but really it, it has that element of of really messing uh, disingenuously with people's emotion, and I think all three of these films do that to a degree. But I, I again, to use James's word, smug. I guess a catfish comes across as as the most smug, and it's it's kind of an oblivious frat boy kind of smug way. Mm-hmm. Not not the I think the Banksy one's a more high art kind of we we know best smug. Uh, this is a different different kind of thing. But that scene, if there's ever a deal breaker for anyone watching catfish you know you could point to that scene it didn't completely break because i i I will have to acknowledge that when you're watching catfish it's marvelously effective i I, I obviously marina is in disagreement here but um but i i mean when i was watching it and i'm pretty cynical when it comes to to films and it, it i was certainly on board with catfish as i was watching it the first time it just makes you wonder why they they wouldn't be up up front with at least some of the details to do that interview. Like, I I guess you could say they wanted like a live reaction of how she will, but even that it's like, again, what is a state line NBC? I mean, you want to have her holding the little uh, DVD player and be like, Oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. Like how, who cares? How cinematic is that reaction? And that's to me a lack of faith by the filmmakers in what they could get. And they're just going for the cheap, TV gimmick. It, it's that, and it's that they might have been concerned she might not have wanted to take part if she knew that I it, think it that's was probably well. And then, then that's right. double double douchebag. Yeah, especially if she signed something ahead of time that was like for we've got your signature. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, you wonder where that's going to stand uh, legally. I don't know. Um, Maybe that's it, why it's not in the film, James or or Marina. I don't know if you saw that scene or, or have any comment on that scene. I didn't see it. Um, I didn't see it either. Um, I think if I had seen it, I you know might have been more critical of them, but because it does doesn't sound like it portrays them very kindly. Yeah, you know. I'm, I'm curious if it actually is an extra on the DVD because that I don't would think seem like something you wouldn't want to put on there. But it's there's a Q and A on the DVD. I think that's it. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's. Uh, I rented it from uh, Blockbuster, and that's the. Uh, the only thing on there was that sort of lame interview, and I, I turned it off after like two minutes because it was annoying. But well, 
there was nothing really to be learned from that. And that it really is a real shame. I mean, if there's one thing that all documentaries should have, real or hoaxed or anywhere in between, documentaries should be loaded to the gills with special features. Because, you know, what's the first thing? Well, I, the first thing I do... If I'm especially if I'm at home watching a documentary, although you can do it mobilely now with all these devices, but I usually end up going to Wikipedia or some other site because I want to know more. A good documentary said, you know, even if it's a technique documentary, the subject makes me want to know more. I'm certainly going up and looking at Banksy art after I watch um, this. I, I, I'm curious about Clifford Irving and even Howard Hughes uh, after watching um, for Fake. And, and uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm curious about this. It's, it's kind of a major dropping of the ball that they just went with a bare bones yeah. disc. Yeah, I mean, I, it's clear that they're afraid of you know, they know that there's a lot of people who are critical of them out there. They, they seem very defensive at this point about the movie, like whenever people interview them and stuff. Which is, again, just makes it seem more suspicious, but... Um, I'm well, curious, uh, James, did mm-hmm. does, does your opinion change at all knowing that Angela is schizophrenic? Uh, what, uh, do you know that she is, or what, what's the deal? Yeah, it was, uh, it was on the same 2020 uh, episode. They did an episode that was kind of a follow-up of Catfish, and it featured the interview with the girl who played Megan, but they actually interview Angela and they reveal that she's schizophrenic. Well, uh, yeah, that changes my opinion. I, I mean, uh, I guess the impression I was under is that she's, she, to me, she, she struck me as like an intelligent, creative and sensitive woman who's trapped in this like sort of mundane life. But more than that, this kind of house of horrors with these, I mean, I don't want to be insensitive, but these, like, retarded kids who are, like, moaning and screaming and have to have their diapers changed, it's like a nightmare. I mean, I, anybody would go nuts with that. Um, and I guess I didn't know that she was actually schizophrenic. That that's, that kind of gives me pause to, to reassess things. It'd be in, It's interesting that in the end title cards, they put up all of these facts, like Ange- Angela doesn't have cancer. Megan isn't at Don Hill or Don Tree or whatever. Why not put oh and Angela is schizophrenic? Like, yeah. Did they know at the time though? Well, they must. Uh, I mean, the first thing you I would mean, think is she's schizophrenic. Yeah, I, I, I got that without the text. I, yeah. I think that's so clearly in the subtext. Like, I didn't look at this woman as lonely and looking for something to do and finding a casually borderline creative outlet i mean you've got to be a a lot further along to do what she did to the level that 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 she did it i mean see i I don't know about that because like i feel like i mean maybe it part of it is how they set up the movie to play that way and maybe that's why they would leave something like that out because they want it to feel like you can identify with her there's people out there in tough situations who might retreat to the internet as an escape and 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 do something kind of like what she did like i i don't know i don't i i never i never really thought that she would i didn't think of her as clinically schizophrenic i just thought of her as like a lot of people have you know sort of different personas based on you know their interactions online and stuff it didn't seem that didn't seem like an actual 
illness to me. Well, her. there's it's. I remember the scene now on the phone where I thought watching it again that it's like wow, that's it's when she's being Megan, so she's already you know being someone else. Right. She's talking to Neve, and she the story is that her horse is in labor or something. And she's like saying how tired she is because her horse is currently in labor and she's going through this whole ordeal of, of this horse giving birth. And it's like that, that seems like a pretty far, <laughs> like just being Megan is a lie enough. And then to like add on that she's going through this horse labor ordeal at this barn that, you know, she didn't own with these horses that she didn't own. And, it seems like a, a far distance to go for a normal person that's already on the phone with someone that they're lying to. Like just yeah. information she doesn't even have to give. Like yeah. she's creating things just to enhance the character or something. But I think that's what happens when you start, you know, lying and well, telling false stories is it just builds to a builds degree. And- but I think that she's much further along the line. Like I, I certainly got that when, when I watched the film and uh, I mean, and that, adds to the fact that like one of the criticisms of people that would like to crap on where the one hour mark is in catfished where it became fake documentary from a real documentary because i think all three of these have that one hour mark wherever it happens to be in the movie um is one of the criticisms is why were these three young super savvy net electronic filming everything all the time you know social networking age uh, so easily duped uh, by this. And I think they were so easily duped by the level at which you're, it's harder to swallow the small lies, but it's easier to swallow the ginormous lies. And the way she has done this, and, and I mean, there's a scene in the movie uh, where, where he says, you know, I, it, it's not that I, it's not that I felt that she, uh, tricked, me. tricked me it was the fact that i just had no reason at that point to look anything up i, I mean but people seem to just hold neve responsible for that oh, no, and no, no, and forget no. that there course. are two other people of involved course. that also could be looking stuff of up course. and you know whether or not neve is willfully blind in this scenario it doesn't just have to be him like the two filmmakers could be just as willfully yeah, blind and, as well and and yeah and and then the question of you know in terms of Googling these things, you know, like did they Google it on screen or did they Google it off screen? And I think they've actually said that they on screen. They've said they redid it on screen. Right. Like the, the sense that like, yeah, you, you find it where the timeline is. It's an eight month timeline, but the timeline is very poorly articulated in the film. Like you, it could be four weeks, you know, I I mean the only, you only, I only knew it was eight months because they said, it was eight months. Other than the fact that you're sending a few large postal packages through the mail, there's not a lot to really give you a sense of timeline. The other thing I think that shows Angela's sort of um, mental state is that she has no problem pulling these pieces of music and passing them off as her own with no fear that you know someone could easily Google them, like, like the Truman Sleeps piece the Philip Glass piece, when you see it on their screen as they're listening to it, it's actually, she didn't even retitle it. It's called Truman yeah. Sleeps. And it's like only someone that must, I, I, I think someone that must have some sort of disconnect there would actually send this stuff and think that um, 
they're not going to find out. Well, they're in where I think you're dead wrong. I, I mean, there's the people are stupid. I, I mean, I, well, I, I think mean, they're giving like, a lot of people are not technical savvy. And while Angela is technical savvy she, enough to have multiple cell phones and and do it, 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 there's still a line of 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 where you where you. But she even says in the movie that she kind of thought he had figured it out yeah. and that she wanted almost wanted to get caught this idea comes up that she wanted to get caught which to me seems like she's someone that's trapped in a cycle yeah. that wants to get out of it yeah. right and it, it, like by sending these pieces of music so haphazardly and lazily it's almost like she just wants to get out of a cycle that she's in because of some mental condition rather than actually you know being completely aware of what she's doing or choosing to do it because you know she's bored or whatever it's like a, a an impulse well to pull this all the way around to the real documentary versus fictional film and wherein lies and you know the the artistic debate on that is up in the air and and maybe completely unnecessary but there's an interesting business side to whether it's a documentary or a fictional film because one interesting story that I read on the web about Catfish is some of the music they used in the film. There's one song that they use in the film that if they're a documentary, it classifies as fair use because that's what reality was as they're capturing it. But if they're a fictional film, they have to pay for the rights. And I don't know what the song is. I've done the research badly yeah, I, here. I heard about it and I guess they are getting sued because they suspect that it's not completely a documentary and, and well whatever. and not only that they didn't they they i mean the filmmakers made and and i guess this falls on andrew slash eugene jarecki or, or even brett radner's error in, in the movie and that they use that song as the closing credits as well so it's oh, not just used that's as right. that's, a piece that's of was, yeah. of you know, music that happens to be hinging on mm -hmm. the reality of the situation, uh, like as in she sent it, which of course she's violating copyright to lie, but whatever. Um, but but anyways, so the, there is a thought there that this record label <laughs> suing this documentary film, a lot of the realities will come in when people have to be under oath, which is a fascinating side story <laughs> and totally totally functions in with the Clifford Irving <laughs> for fake. Like, it's amazing how these three films swirl together. Um, mm -hmm. And I don't know. I'll be very curious. I, I, I can still well, recommend Catfish to people, and I still like the movie, and I, I think it's an interesting film movie, even if it makes you feel a bit icky, you know, I, in, I in your soft, well. juicy moral center. But um, I'm just, I've, my moral center is too juicy. <laughs> too juicy. <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know, it's still, I still think that, um, right or wrong, it's an interesting film to recommend to people. And I think it's a, a film that net savvy or non-net savvy people could have a, 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 a conversation. Uh, obviously, people from Vancouver accepted. Um. <laughs> <laughs> ha, ha. <laughs> well, I just wanted to bring up, like, I think, you know, a lot of this does come down to if you think the movie is exploitative and if you think it's immoral or not. And I would just say for me personally, like, there's a lot of... Th like, should you be expected to watch the movie and then go out and research all this other stuff around it to find out the truth so that you can judge this movie? Because to me, watching the movie, it doesn't feel immoral. The characters in it 
yeah, it pushes at the boundaries, but I still feel like they're respectful enough of the the people that you know Angela and her family that it doesn't cross the line for me. But I agree when you start hearing about all the other stuff and thinking about the possibilities of what may have or may not have happened, then you start questioning that. And it's like, well, okay, I just want to cut it off and be like, okay, the movie itself is works for me. It doesn't cross the line. End of story. But I don't know. I mean, maybe that's not acceptable. Maybe that's not the right answer. I know uh, Malcolm... Uh, whatever his Ingram. name, Ingram, has been ranting on Twitter nonstop about how much he hates Catfish and he thinks it's like the scourge of the documentary world because it's so exploitative. And I don't I don't agree with that. There's more. I mean, that uh, Wiseman documentary, Titicut Follies, feels dangerously <laughs> in exploitive territory. I, I, I mean, there's some I actually scenes don't in that agree film with that, 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 that feel like really sensationalized uh you know i mean there, there's an any element of telling a story that things are going to be magnified even if it's accidentally so it, it all comes down to parsing filmmaker intentions and that's a very dangerous game to get into i mean you're gonna be wrong on some level it's fun yeah. to talk about but right i mean if you want to talk about the 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 moral the the spot where you know if one your moral compass is per- pointing perfectly north um the the spot where you are judged is when you continue to film after you see who angela is and her, what her kids are like and blah 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 um and that's not to say that you know it's kind of like saying you know if if i was you know, if I witnessed uh, uh, someone stealing an old lady's purse, would you intervene? And if you, you know, or would you pull your camera out and film it? Or, or it, there's a This American Life episode about the guy who films the woman who's standing on the shore with this big storm coming in. And he's dealing with the fact that he stood there and took pictures rather than going to help her. And she ended up being washed away. And I mean, not everyone is perfect. And these guys, you know, to say these guys are douchebags, it's not like a all-encompassing, like in perpetuity statement like they just in this film i think made choices that were kind of douchebaggy it doesn't mean that they're uh you know like that all the time like everyone makes poor choices and this one it just so happens that they made a poor choice because it was so tantalizing the story the idea that this could make such a great film and you know it, they ended up getting a deal with Universal Pictures and the whole shebang, and now they're the talk of the town because they decided rather than turn the camera off, they're going to keep it on. And it's like some people are willing to do that, some people aren't. Society I, almost always rewards those people that are going to do the wrong right. thing. There's a fascination with watching people do the wrong thing on screen. I mean, all of reality television is fundamentally based <laughs> on watching the people do the wrong thing on on screen. Um, I, I've always felt that with documentaries, if if I have, I, I can generally like, or Errol Morris has been accused of exploiting his subjects, and it's never bothered me because I've always felt a sincerity in the the portrayal that it's it's just he is genuinely interested in these people and he's not going to um you know a a, a southern or, or he's not going to wisconsin to sit down with some idiot to make them explain to him why they're so dumb 
or, you know, right. he's not confronting people. He's letting them talk. In this movie, they're confronting her. They're not just letting right. her tell her they're story. They're engineering. They're, they're, it's an, in, it's a, a confrontation, and that's where it feels a little... Well, in an interesting sidebar to the Errol Morris thing, uh, in Tabloid, there are several Q&As. I, I know that Tabloid hasn't been released in any proper fashion, but see it at all costs. It's an extraordinary documentary. Um, but the, the subject matter of that documentary, I mean, Errol Morris is getting at one thing, and in order to get at his thesis, you know, uh, often the subject gets thrown under the bus by herself mm. <laughs> as much as with the filmmaking, but it's there. There's a, there's a diametric uh, like opposed agenda between filmmaker and subject. And there's a Q and a couple Q and A's online where, uh, Joyce McKinney, the, the subject of the thing basically comes up for the Q and a and says how bad Errol Morris's film of her is. <laughs> <laughs> and it's yeah, a f- I, I heard about that and it's funny because i had that reaction when i saw the movie at tiff like for whatever reason you know i think it was because so many people were laughing in the movie and it just felt odd to me and it just made me stop and go whoa like this poor lady is getting raked across the coals here and it like i still love the movie but that did make me feel uncomfortable and like i feel like it did cross a line at some point and then, yeah, hearing that she's now turned up at a number of Q&As and been very upset about how she's portrayed in the movie is kind of weird. Okay, last thing for me on Catfish is um, a lot of friends of mine, uh, this made it into their top tens of the year, uh, is a movie called uh, uh, New York Export Opus Jazz. And uh, the promo image for that film is the shot from Catfish. So you know how they're traveling around to the the festival to make the other film? The other film exists, and it's really, it's apparently really, really good. I know at least one person that it was in his top ten, and I mean, there's no cross-connect like i mean only people you'd have to do the like there's obviously it's it's a movie about dance and and spontaneous of people's lives coming together in dance i haven't seen the film but um uh and i'd question if anyone here has but uh but anyway um the only connection to cat direct connection to catfish is one of the promo images is that first painting from the film. So on the whole douchebaggery front, here's a way it's, I believe it's only actually Henry of the, of the three guys yeah, that I've is, right that here. is involved in it, that directed it. Um, but here's a way to look at a completely different piece of art that is made and, and take this sort of, you know, a lot of it's in the moment, reacting in the moment and, and, and realizing that you're in the moment, reacting into the moment. And, and, and you can call it douchebaggery, but you can also call it just like deer in headlights. I mean, even if it's you've planted the headlights and you're the deer, but there's this thing of when you're capturing something in real time that it's, it's really hard to get it right because there's a bunch of different anxieties playing. And sure, you can be wrong for saying setting up that situation in the first place and figuring out when to call it. But, um, or the however, you know, year long, post-production, uh, post-production and, and, period yeah. where you sat in the editing room with it yeah, fair <laughs> and enough. was like, I'm, I'm fine with it. <laughs> fair enough. I mean, it's not Absolutely just the nothing moment. Absolutely nothing is instant. Fair enough. But I mean, 
you've got what you've got, right? So yeah. then the moral the moral question is: Do we show this to other people, uh, or, or do we profit off of it? Do we earn fame and fortune off of it? But um, here you have another like like the other two films have all these supplementary films. You can watch Tall Hop Blonde we talked about here, but now now you have a film on dance by these guys that you could look at. You know how they create when they're not. Mm-hmm. in this sort of guerrilla documentary mode this is what they're normally paid to do so it's something i plan on checking out not just because i've heard it's very good the trailers online um but also i do want to tie it in i must admit catfish is one of those things that it's it's fascinating and you know you almost want the paul verhoven version of catfish that after every scene there's like would you like to know more <laughs> and you, you could click and go off you know and, and and do that which they obviously didn't do with this dvd release which is a shame yeah uh i'd like to know if any of these other supplemental things like uh the 2020 deal or whatever do they they get into the possibility that that neve might not have been the only person being duped or or that I mean, did, she didn't create this whole world specifically for him, or it, maybe there was a whole, you know, half a dozen guys or across the country she was playing with at the same time. I, I don't think that they had mentioned other guys, but I think they may have mentioned that she still is online and and goes under different names or something. I, I can't really remember. <laughs> I'd have to watch it again, but I don't remember there being any specific comments on other duped people but are but are neve and angela still friends on facebook that's the real question <laughs> well, that's here. that's what you got to wait till the end of the movie to find <laughs> well, out and and it's fascinating that that's sort of how the social network ends i guess it's now the official cliche ending of facebook movies is the you know friend or status ending <laughs> yeah so uh Right. Yeah, I, I guess my main thing is I just don't know what the movie... What the point is? What, yeah, what the point is other than just... Them it, getting famous it's, off it's it. It's purely just um, a, a visceral, suspenseful experience, which is fine. But it's it's doesn't really say much, in my opinion. And... Um, I don't know. It, it says enough to fuel a 45-minute conversation, though. Right, but all of the conversation is like the stuff that they probably would rather people not be Fair. talking about. <laughs> um, but uh, even watching it again, I still, you know, uh, got something from it. But I also, you know, still had some of the problems I had initially were magnified, and they didn't go away. But it's more of just uh, coming to terms with, you know, what, you know... Um, I'm looking for in the film or what I look for in documentaries or whatever. Uh, it's, it's a complicated watch, I guess. Yeah. So Marina, did you have any other, uh, thoughts? Cause I know you kind of just, you know, at the beginning didn't really no, like no, it, but it's, I think Jay pretty much nailed it for me. I just, I don't see the point of this. It didn't, I just don't understand what the point of it was, but I had the unfortunate, reaction that I just didn't care for it even as a movie it just they really did nothing for me on any level like do you think it's because uh, do you think it's do you think it's because the characters you couldn't get into the characters or the people in it guys they just um, and I think that maybe has something to do with it as well I just 
I didn't like them. They, there was something really that put me off about them. And I think in part, it, I think that scene that you guys brought up earlier um, that I never actually commented on where, you know, he's asking her to uh, talk to her, talk to him in that voice. And I think that that just sort of amplified everything. It's just, they just seemed really creepy and not genuine. I don't know. I just, I never bought them. I never bought Neve and his friends or brother or whatever, whoever they were. And I just, for her, I just, I felt sorry for her, whether she's a real person or, you know, some figment of the imagination. I just, she just seemed pathetic. And I didn't want to feel that towards anybody. I just, the, the whole movie just rubbed me the wrong way. I just didn't care for anything that they were getting at, and which I never even really understood. So for me, it was just, it wasn't like a waste of my time. I'm glad I saw it because now I sort of knew what people were talking about, but I just didn't get the hype, but I still don't. Even after listening to you guys talk about it for 45 minutes. I mean, I can <laughs> sort of buy into points here and there, but I just, I can't, in my, cell, in my heart, I can't bring up any emotion for it. I just, I have no passion for this movie one way or another. So, so it's, it's an indifference and then a confusion at the hype? Uh, that's part of it, and part of it is my own reaction to it. I just, I really felt nothing when I walked out of that movie theater. It's very rare where I watch something and I don't have a reaction either way. I'm just sort of passive. And I was really passive when I walked out of this. I just, I, I just didn't feel anything afterwards. Not even like sorry for any of the characters. I just kind of thought, well, that was kind of stupid. I felt the same way about Michael Bay's Transformers, so I know where you're coming from. <laughs> well, I, yeah, well, that's the thing. There are there's the occasional movie where that happens. I it surprised me a little bit that this was that the, that it was that this film as opposed to uh, the usual suspects. Well, exactly, because you know, I mean, there seemed to be so not only the hype about it, but there was was a, there seems to be and there was and there still seems to be a really clear line of people that love it, people that hate it, and I just. I'm just sort of in the middle. I just don't care. I just have no reaction to this whatsoever. Other than to think that, you know, it's an interesting concept that just, for me, didn't work. I'm still waiting for the Facebook movie. <laughs> okay. Um, any other thoughts, James? Um, no, I, I, um, I guess I, I think I'm, I still got my copy from Blockbuster. It's mine for another 24 hours, so I think I'll Maybe I'll watch this one now with the knowledge that she's actually mentally ill and see what impressions I draw from it. I guess I I went into this one without any knowledge, same way with Exit Through the Gift Shop, so perhaps I'll I'll reassess my opinion of it. But <laughs> I guess I, I found them I found it interesting. I wanted to watch it, uh, the whole thing. I found it compelling and but um, I guess it left me with a warm, fuzzy feeling that's starting to fade away. <laughs> <laughs> interesting. It's interesting, just as a quick side note, you know that movie Billy the Kid? Yep. There's a documentary called Billy the Kid about a, a kid named Billy uh, that falls in love with a girl and tries to court her, and he's like 13 years old or something, and he's kind of a quirky kid. And that movie was accused of a lot of staging of scenes and whatnot and then it came out afterwards that he had um asperger's yep. um and that wasn't mentioned at all in the film so it, it, it was the filmmaker was heavily criticized for for that for um 
Well, I'm convinced the kid in Spellbound, the 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 super geeky kid in Spellbound, has like full on Aspergers, and yeah. it's never mentioned. I mean, it's I don't know if it's that big of a deal to the because you get such a small snapshot. Like they're almost types in that yeah. film, like the way they you know here's the rich preppy kid, and here's this and there's that. But I mean, everyone laughs at that kid in the movie, but then you wonder, you know, I mean. Is, is is he just naively, genuinely a happy sort of dorky child, or 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 is or are the filmmakers intentionally or accidentally exploiting a uh, like what's a yeah what, what what's the difference between exploiting a character flaw versus exploiting a medical condition? And I guess that's yeah. where you get into some sticky sticky territory. And it, just a final note for me that the scene where Angela and Neve are are talking and she's drawing him um i guess the thing that bothered me as well was just that she apologizes many times and she compliments him many times and he just sits there and takes it all like one second she's like i'm so sorry what i did for you that must have been so painful i can see the pain in your eyes you've got such a beautiful smile and he's just sitting there accepting all of this whereas which to me says that if accepting all of it being real i'm pissed off that you played with me and it's like fair enough but you figured it out a long time ago and her situation is a lot worse than yours is in terms of your heart being broken on the internet when you should have been smart enough to google uh, and do a little bit of research and got your head out of your ass and figured out that hey this might not be real so it, it just you know it, it's it's less that well part of it is that they actually confronted her but they left her hanging to like just sit there and and apologize and like as though that you know this is the scene where you should apologize for everything you've done like what if she really did have cancer and they showed up and she had no hair and she was like sitting in her bed with tubes and stuff would they be like you know you really hurt me i, I thought we would fuck <laughs> but, but- the capacity with i mean i think all three of these movies show the capacity of people to accept lies when it's in their own interest i mean the head in the sand the all these guys all these art dealers selling elmir paintings knowing deep down that there's just no way he's keeps pulling up this one guy's only has only painted for this two-year window and yet he can just keep pulling out paintings of this guy almost upon request Mm -hmm. um and yet they're turning them over for 10 times what they're buying them so it's like yep just keep them coming you know and willful blindness neve has the same thing and the filmmakers to to a degree not mm-hmm. angela so much mm-hmm. uh but uh even them and then and then it, it it's even stickier in the in the banksy in the banksy one about um about that i i think the banksy one is the most self-aware i i think mm-hmm. of all of them you know even though there's the debate about where the factual theory, theory character and and where the fictional version uh, you know where they diverge because there's enough if you go on the internet and do enough research there's there's plenty of facts that 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 say that he's a real person like you know some investigative journalists would have debunked it right now if it was that obvious like there's clearly enough there right but it all becomes this line of where you draw where you're 
where you do the work of the like a confidence man. He gives you the confidence for you to lie to yourself. And 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 I think all three of these movies have that line somewhere. For, not just for the filmmakers and the 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 reason for being, but on the part of the viewer as well. And and I think that's. I think that's what inherently makes them interesting. I mean, if the Banksy film didn't have this element, would people still be talking about it? If it was just a documentary on street art told in a down and dirty found footage way, would people still be talking about it? Probably not. Catfish, same thing. Like all of their flaws build into their mythology. It's actually a brilliant form of like perpetual, like these films will live longer than I think a lot of fictional films because of their built-in mythologies i well that's why i find it so hard to believe that they initially started filming it just to do a documentary about an online relationship like what a piece of shit that would have been <laughs> i mean they they uh, they of course they would jump at the opportunity to investigate something that they think might be uh questionable i mean but i mean i'm curious as to what the goal their goal was in terms of how they portrayed Angela in the film versus what how they think people look at her at the end of the film. Like, what, what was their goal when they said, okay, this picture is locked? In their minds, what did they think Angela seemed like at the end of the film, and what did they think they seemed like? Did they think that they seemed... Like they're so shocked by the response. Oh, did they did they think they seemed they like, seem, the, uh, like the the heroes. good guys, the yeah. heroes? Well, it's the, the what what I would call the Jesus camp syndrome in documentary filmmaking. When the two ladies made Jesus camp, it's clearly structured like a horror movie. The musical cues, mm -hmm. the editing. In a way, it's it's almost clumsily structured like a horror movie, and yet the 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 subjects initial viewings of the film so the story goes is that they were yep that's 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 how we're portrayed because they're only seeing they're seeing it through their own filters and with their own sets of biases and blindnesses and mm -hmm. whatever and then what they didn't hate the film until the rest of the world saw the film and then you got like you said like how do these guys see themselves versus how the sort of wave of audience members and then of course the critical and online press reaction and like you said there's people that are actively I, I don't think that Banksy or F is for fake has like active enemies whereas Catfish seems to have a fair number of people that are that just go out of their way to constantly harp on yeah it's just weird that there's no moment where they any of them really says you know I kind of feel like an ass or I, I kind of feel bad like the the one guy says I don't want to embarrass her. And then the code, the brother slash co-director says something along the lines of, well, this is her wake up call. We can come here and, and wake her up to this and, and stop her. And it's like, that's your mission. I mean, <laughs> it just seems weird to me. Like, yeah. congratulations. You, you, you pointed it out to her and you, you shook your fist and, or your finger in her face and you made her talk like Megan and I mean I guess you could have spun it as that they were trying to help her in some way but it definitely didn't sound like that was their yeah I mean maybe maybe that was the idea but um, I don't know what what helping her is releasing it as a major motion picture and oh yeah that, that 
I think the fame element and the infamous element or whatever of when a movie becomes, I mean, Catfish is not a hundred million dollar film. I mean, in terms of a documentary of that kind, it is highly successful Mm -hmm. in terms of a film. It's very modestly successful. I mean, it made $3 million, right? Uh, it got a lot of online press. But at the same point, even a film of modest success at what Catfish is, and certainly for filmmakers, first-time filmmakers, it's a huge success. Uh, that's got to have it. Like, look at what happened. Now, Blair Witch is a $100 million hoaxy-ish big online marketing campaign. I mean, that community had, was just flooded with people coming there. Like, I mean, it... it, it fucked up that community the fame on that community screwed it up and i imagine angela is i don't know i don't think she's much better off all she's done is given been given the media dr phil treatment which doesn't help anyone um right i mean you you can look at this you know um this self-important sort of we're going to step in and save angela from herself thing that and, turned into this, take this the giant yeah <laughs> this giant story and now she's on 2020 and blah, blah blah and it's like it's no different than dr phil taking you know golden voice ted williams and forcing him into <laughs> rehab and turning him into a circus you know uh you, freak show you're forgetting the one key thing is that it's great marketing for her artwork <laughs> well apparently she had something to do with the the design of the poster oh really yeah Nice. Well, but, but I mean, I I mean, realistically, it's a good poster. No, it <laughs> is. It is a good poster. But realistically, is this gonna sell her heart? No, no. I mean, it, it it will leave people just thinking, "Wow, she's uh, pretty crazy." Yeah, <laughs> her art is. You know, she yeah. Makes like I, the, the idea that they're gonna. <laughs> you, you, I see what you're saying. The idea that they get off self congratulating that they've given an. A platform for her to monetize her work I, I that's that's fairly disingenuous too i mm-hmm. think yeah um all right so i guess uh is that about it anything else I, I think that's about it i mean i would say people who like catfish should see tall hot blonde just to to see that approach to a similar story and yeah. um it catfish is definitely a better film, but I think if Tall Hot Blonde was was they had the access that the filmmakers and Catfish had, not that you know the people in the story were filming it themselves and you know pushing this along to get to the point where it gets to. I think that would, I think that would end up the film would end up in a court trial or something. Um, yeah, which says something about the Catfish. Like if anything bad happened in Catfish they would possibly be on trial for it. Um, so it's the, the idea of the filmmaker being a little too involved in the story, I think, but with, with tall hot blonde, it's similar, just not as, um, not as captivating and engaging, but the, the actual story itself is probably a little more interesting. Yeah. And Matt wanted me to point out that, uh, he just sent me an email uh, saying that 2010, and, and that's part of the reason why we did this show, is that 2010 was certainly the year of the like of of, of a lot of them. So like what films we didn't mention, but I guess would make for supplementary viewing on top of all the other supplementary viewing that you could go into with these films would be uh, Winnebago Man, which really walks the line of staged versus 
not staged and how a film was crafted and how the documentary evolved. Um, and I'm still here, which we did bring up at one point. Um, and, uh, yeah, there's just been a lot of films about perception and, and I mean, even the fiction films like, uh, Inception and Shutter Island and all the other ones. But uh, there were a lot of strange documentaries this year. And while the Academy did recognize the Banksy one in the the award nomination, the other ones were, they, they didn't, that was the only one they really went out on a limb for. Yeah, there was something else, one of the other ones I was a little surprised at too. Gasland, because it's yeah, just, right. uh, I mean, again, good message. Bad filmmaking, like all around bad filmmaking. I didn't think it was bad filmmaking. I think that movie's pretty grotty. I, um, I actually look great, but liked what he did with what he had. But I agree that it's it's it nominated because of the message. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, okay so uh, next episode of the Movie Club Podcast, uh, I believe we're going to do a bit of a fantasy thing here. We're going to do uh, Zardoz. Starring Sean Connery and uh, Flash Gordon, the uh, the eighties movie, seventies, eighties, seventies. So that should be pretty fun, pretty different from this one, I think. <laughs> uh, and of course, if you have other suggestions or ideas for future episodes, you can always uh, email us or leave a comment uh, on the site. And uh, we do want you to go over to movieclubpodcast.com and leave your own comments about the movies that we've just talked about. Uh, cause you know, there's still a lot of discussion to be had, I'm sure. And everyone has their own take on these movies. So, uh, feel free to let us know what you thought. And, um, I think that's about it. Stay tuned to, uh, all of our respective websites for, uh, more great movie discussion and uh i don't know maybe uh matt and andrew will be back for the next episode if we can uh twist their arm a little bit what happened to matt tonight working yeah well he that's what he says but he's actually uh, (laughs) fucker he's uh he's actually doing his um did you guys know he's been doing stand-up lately <laughs> okay, he's moonlighting as a as a st- I I I would I wouldn't pay, but I would attend to see <laughs> stand up. Yeah, he's he's over at the Bloomington the airport uh, Holiday Inn in Bloomington. <laughs> I oh. guess it beats the whole like uh <laughs> open mic night or something. No, he, he's got it's a paying gig. He's developed kind of a fan base. It's like mostly observational stuff, you know. But he's got some kinks to work out of his routine. He's kind of, I mean, it's sort of a Seinfeld type thing. It's like one of his deals is he says, um, you know, why, why is it called taking a shit? If anything, it should be called leaving a shit. You're not taking it anywhere. And then he does like he does like forty five minutes of like material on, um, basically like sea life, you know, like squids and whatnot. And Are you joking? Yeah. You're joking. Yeah, I, he's working. <laughs> <laughs> but that's like F for fake moment. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's brilliant for taking it at least four solid minutes, though, James. That was pretty amazing. <laughs> I don't know. The sea life, I think, was the giveaway. 
at that point. I think it was the he does 45 minutes. Yeah. <laughs> oh, you could have had me for another five minutes easy. Oh, I could have gone into that, yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, that's yeah, definitely a fitting story. Um, so, uh, so yeah, I guess that's about it. And uh, we'll see you uh, probably two months from now, month and a half. Sure, it could be a day if you just downloaded this episode <laughs> two months after it was published. So, uh, yeah, we'll see you next time right here on the Movie Club Podcast. Goodbye. <laughs> <laughs>